1: So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to EcoWildExpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And, hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you, and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find
2: the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile.
0: everybody we are at the mobile hunters expo the northern show here in kalamazoo michigan uh very excited for this episode uh for our first episode our first segment of this episode we've got andy may on the podcast andy how you doing brother doing good awesome. yeah good awesome. show huh yeah dude it's, it's unreal it's it's a, it's a room full of killers we were at the southern show and of course at the southern show you had this a room full of guys from the southeast that are just big buck killers very high iq when it comes to whitetail iq and here's the exact same mm-hmm. just the bucks are a lot bigger up here so it's uh <laughs> it makes it a big difference I'm like i'm talking to some of these guys that are like in their mid-20s and they hey i may mean, i killed this 163 and you know a couple of 150s and they're showing me photos i'm like holy crap wow. i'm like I, you know you got guys in the southeast that you know, every now and then you might have an opportunity at that, but it's a very small fraction of percent of people has actually had that opportunity. Different world, yeah. Different world. It's all relative to where you're at. Oh, yeah. And it's like I was telling guys earlier that down in Alabama, there's a very good chance you could kill a buck that's, you know, a mature buck. He's five and a half years old. He might be 105 inches, 110 inches. Yes. And uh, and then every now and then you get that one that breaks that 130 mark. You're like, this is awesome, man. That kind of
3: sounds a little more like northern Michigan. I mean, it's changing a little bit up there. They got some antler point restrictions that have been in place, so it's getting better, but that, up there, you get into kind of that northern uh, lower peninsula. Even to the UP, you get a lot of those old bucks that don't really grow big trophy racks. Mm-hmm. You know, 100, 100 inches, 110 yeah. inches. You know, big. Kind of like heavy eights with short beams, short beams, yep. short tines. Yep. Yeah, dude, that's
0: a that's an Alabama special, dude. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I got to ask. So the, the whole kind of series with this episode uh, with everybody I'm going to interview is very similar to what I did at the Southern Show, which is I want to learn a little bit more about you of what has been like one of the biggest factors for you when it comes to having consistent success, targeting
3: mature bucks, especially as you travel because I know you traveled a bunch of states every year. Yeah, yeah, I think I've hunted, uh, I think I hunted my 19th state. Uh, just recently, so wow. okay. I've been around not all for whitetail, but most of them. Yeah um, It's kind of hard to put a finger on it, but this is this is what is my opinion um, I grew up hunting here in Michigan In in the southern lower portion of Michigan We have 70% of our hunters so Michigan has a lot of hunters PA actually has more hunters than Michigan but in PA it's spread out across the entire state. Mm. Where in Michigan, 70% is in our southern lower, right where I hunt. So it's the ultimate high pressure. Um, very hard to get on mature deer, very hard to find them. And the guys that do consistently, they live it, they're out there searching, they're grinding, they're um, putting in just next level effort. Mm. And, and I grew up, this was my training grounds, um, trying to find mature deer in southern Michigan. Um, we can we can get some big deer if they can get some age. The hardest thing is just getting the age, you know, like a two or three year old buck, you know, sometimes he's the biggest buck in the block, you know. So um, it's, it's a lot different than other states, but because, you know, you have to put in that next level effort, and it's kind of what I grew up doing. The second I crossed state lines into any state, it was a different world. Even states that are considered high pressure, like Ohio. I went to Ohio and I was like, Holy cow, not that I thought it was easy, but there was way better age class, more bucks of of age class. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it had this perception of being easier. It still was very hard to kill a four or five year buck, but there was just more of them around. So I think for me personally, the biggest thing was growing up in hunting Southern Michigan and learning to be successful here in a very difficult environment, high competition, with all these guys access is tough so it's like really um, the guys that are putting forth the next level they kind of rise to the top and you throw them in an environment where there's a little less pressure a little more bucks it's like yeah you're gonna have success high success and be real efficient so you know I started going to Ohio and then I started going to Illinois and then I drew an Iowa tag and yeah, I wasn't necessarily going there and killing 180 inch bucks mm-hmm. in a couple days, but a lot of times, because of my career, I would drive down for the weekend and I'd have two days to hunt, three days. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of known for that. I work at a school um, and I don't get vacation, vacation time. So I would travel like kind of weekend warrior type stuff, maybe call in sick on a Monday or whatever. But so a lot of my hunts were those two to four days. That was like my window. And, um, you know, I was getting it done at a very high rate on good deer, you know, like, yeah, I wasn't killing, you know, maybe the biggest one in the block, mm-hmm. but I was killing nice mature deer, out of state on a quick hunt, and, and that was good enough for me. And then I think too, like, um, I think I have more of an aggressive approach, mm-hmm. and I'm not a very timid hunter, and I'm not afraid to get in there and mix it up, and I think that that lends well to kind of developing, um your instincts as a hunter. So I've been hunting a long time. I'm I'm 45 years old, but I've hunted 19 states. I've hunted, um, you know, all across the country. And I don't necessarily even have a style. My style is to be aggressive and to push the envelope. And because that's always been my style, I've made a ton of mistakes. And I probably make more mistakes than anybody in here. Like, don't tell them all that, but I do. I mean, I really do. I bump deer all the time. I make mistakes, but because of my aggressive approach, I'm always pushing the envelope. I create more opportunities. So out of all my friends and even a lot, of, a lot of the guys here, I get more opportunities at Good Bucks than most of them because of my style, but I'm also screwing up more. I'm always pushing, oh, maybe a little too hard sometimes, but I'm, I'm, I'm making those opportunities and inevitably I, I have some success. Mm-hmm. And I think too, like um, I've talked about like developing your instincts as a hunter and I, I I was talking to Johnny Stewart about it. Like, him and I both, we we really tap into that. Like, I really trust my gut and trust my instincts. And after doing this for, you know, 25, almost 30 years and kind of having that aggressive approach and learning to always go with my gut and follow my instincts, like, they, they started to develop over time. You know, and you find yourself making – the right decision more often, like you know you get a gut feeling to hold up or to push further or to go this way or to you know check this this ridge or this drainage, or even when to move and when not to move you know if you 're like ground hunting or whatever, and you just start to tap into those instincts and then you get you start to get real effective, make better decisions, and put yourself in the game more so i think it's a combination of all of that i think it's from growing up hunting in a hard state i think guys that grew up hunting iowa would have a hard time coming to the south Mm -hmm. southern michigan and having success there's a lot of guys uh real big name guys that lived in michigan and didn't really kill anything that uh exceptional Mm -hmm. and moved to iowa and now they have a wall full of big bucks, mm-hmm. and, and and you don't see the opposite of that. You don't see a lot of these big state guys come to like a PA or an Alabama yeah. or a Michigan and do well. Um, and, and, but it's a different world. It's a whole different skill set, and that's not taking anything away from those guys because there's a learning curve there too. And a lot of those guys that are in Iowa, the the the, the top hunters. You know they might not be killing four or five year old deer; they're killing six and seven. Mm -hmm. You know, or those big, those big trophy bucks. So they they got a whole good skill set themselves. But I think it's a combination of growing up in a tough place and having this kind of be my training ground, and then branching out to other states that have a little bit better opportunity. But also, kind of favoring that more aggressive approach that creates more opportunities. I always tell guys: if you're too timid and you're too cautious you're kind of you're on the outskirts looking mm-hmm. in, right? You're, yeah. oh, you're yeah. playing it safe, and you're never really in there where you need to be mm-hmm. because you're worried about spooking that deer, or I don't want to, you know, I want to make this spot last all season, or I don't want to push the deer out and ruin my whole season. Well, I don't ever think like that. You know, I, I'm always thinking about, I'm either trying to like gather information through scouting so that when I feel I have everything I need to feel confident in a spot or a sit, and then that's when I dive in. Or or I'm in there just scouting and kind of hunting as I go and really pushing in there. And if I bump into deer, it you know, it's not ideal, but it gave me information that I didn't have otherwise. You know, and a lot of times that has led me to a good spot or a chasing a new buck, because I'm in there kind of pushing the envelope. I spook a lot of deer, I do. I bump a lot of deer, I spook a lot of deer, but I'm it's like I'm almost in their face so much, pushing in, I create more encounters for myself. So I'm, I'm always on good deer, like all throughout the season. Um, I mean, there's certainly seasons that are, are tougher than others and I've had them, but I think my style just, it creates more opportunities than say your average guy that might go in and, and sit a thicket or sit a funnel or, or something like that. And I do all that stuff too, but it has to be a very specific reason for me to do that. I need to know a buck's there. I need to know that the timing of the year, like this, this area heats up or, or whatever. And if I don't have that, if if it's not that time, I'm in there and I'm pushing and I'm creating opportunities.
0: Oh, listen, we're gonna do a, we're gonna have to do a full length episode because yeah. uh, I've got about thirty five questions. <laughs> I, I want to, I would love to go through, but there's no time for it. Um, one of the last things I want to do, uh, kind of with you, to kind of wrap up, because there's a lot there that I think people are going to want to hear more about on an actual episode sure. with you, um, but. What do you think is one of the biggest mistakes that if a guy, say, like that weekend War's is doing that's keeping him or holding him back from being successful, whether it's on his own private farm, whether he's hunting public land, whether he's hunting in lease land, whatever, or he's traveling to hunt, what do you think is holding him back potentially based off, again, some of the conversations you've had with guys that are trying to figure out how to become more successful and more efficiently successful?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That answer might be a little different depending on that guy's situation. So I'll tackle it from like an out of state perspective. Mm-hmm. Like a weekend warrior that maybe he's traveling from Michigan down to Ohio. Um, I think when you are a weekend warrior, when you when you are on a time crunch, mm-hmm. um, you are forced to try to make things happen. If you if you want to be successful, you have to you actually have to kind of force that um that encounter and that hunt. Rather than where, if you had 10 days to hunt, mm-hmm. you might play, you might sit a couple observation sits, mm-hmm. and you might sit back and wait and just kind of like maybe stage hunt your way in depending on the situation. You might be a little more relaxed, you might be more apt to go back at, at uh, noon and take a nap, eat lunch. Mm-hmm. But when you have three days, like I'm sending you to Illinois mm-hmm. on this piece of public ground, or on this permission piece and I need you to kill a good buck in three days. It's like you are on a mission. Mm-hmm. And you, you the, the number one thing is like you have to find that deer. You have to find that deer. So like from, from start to finish, you are on search mode and you are on aggressive mode. Because half of that, half of that issue is just finding the, the deer or you know finding that buck. So you have to kind of like, I think when you, when you have these time constraints, it almost creates a style. That a lot of guys don't need to have mm-hmm. because they have more time. They can play a more patient approach, a more you know sit back and wait for the perfect condition approach. Where if you got a, a window like South Dakota when I went last year, I had three days. I drove 19 hours to hunt three days. I have three days to get it done on a mule deer hunt. Like you're you're aggressive and you are focused from daylight to dark, and you are in search mode, and you are like all your senses are tuned in, and you are you're at the top of the predator food chain you know and that's Mm kind of how you have to look at it when you're on that time crutch and be more aggressive because you just need that one opportunity Mm -hmm. but if i were to like you know wake up late get out there late to the glassing knob and you know glass for an hour and then it's like oh man you know stretch and eat a little something and and you're taking a break you're talking to your buddy it's like no you have to stay focused every second and you're glassing, you're looking for that one little glimpse, mm. one antler mm. or a deer passing through a little shady pocket where if you're not looking at that moment, you miss it. Mm. So it's more of that, the, the, that, those wall of time constraints force you to, to have a whole new style that is not reckless, but it's very aggressive and very direct and very focused. I can focus and do my best and, 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 and be a real effective hunter for three or four days mm-hmm. you know you start giving me nine ten days i start getting worn out mm-hmm. yeah i'm I'm. maybe i don't want to get up early i sleep till nine one day get out there a little late or i come in one day for lunch it's it's harder but you, you do it for two three four days like yeah you can stay like ultra laser focused and you can get things done but a lot of guys don't have the confidence to go to 19 hour drive to hunt three days like i've done that I've done that for 20 years, not 19 hours, but I drive six or nine or four, you know, with two days to hunt because the first few times I did that, I came back with a nice Pope and Young type buck. Like I can do this, you know, I can do this. Like hunting in Michigan helped me because it's a hard place to hunt and now I'm going to easier places to hunt. Mm -hmm. And and I can do this and I can have fun and I can kill nice deer. So I just started doing it. You only have two days to hunt Illinois. It's almost a $580 tag. And I would buy it and drive down and hunt two days, you know, and I'd come back with something really nice. So you, you can do it, but you, you need some experience. You know, you need to build up that experience. A new hunter trying to just, boom, bounce and bomb to this state and this state, that's a tall order because mm-hmm. you're running into different types of terrain, different types of habitat, different challenges. But if you develop some skills, you know, especially if you hunt in a tough area, you develop some skills, you probably have a good skill set. And if you're getting it done in those areas, mm-hmm. you probably have the skill set to go just about anywhere and get on some nice deer. And you can't be afraid to just go and come home empty-handed. I don't care. If I go for a three-day hunt and I come yeah. home empty-handed, I don't care. Nobody cares. Like, I I could say that on a podcast, and 15 minutes later, nobody remembers. Yeah. You know, so nobody cares. But it's more about building your skill set and just and just having the confidence to do it. And if you never put yourself in that situation, you don't know you don't know what you can do. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of guys can probably do those types of things, and maybe they don't have that confidence. But it does. It takes a level of commitment. It takes years of experience, and it takes a laser focus when you're there. It's not hang out with Buddy, drink beer time. It's mm-hmm. like you're there on a mission. It's three days. you got three days to get it done. That's the way I look at it, but there's other guys that are way more relax they want to go with their buddy and just have a good hunt and just have fun if they shoot a deer great if they shoot a nice deer even better but it's like th- that's that's their fun you know but when i go on those trips more times than not it's kind of that laser focus like i'm really trying to test myself and, and get something done so i don't know it, it's probably different for everybody but that's that's kind of the way i look at it we've
0: got so much to talk about but we're gonna have to save it for a full length episode <laughs> andy thank you for joining us and yeah. I appreciate you coming to the expo man hey
3: thank you absolutely yep appreciate it
0: All right, guys, in the next segment, we got the man himself, Dan Infault, joining us. Super excited here. And this is the first time Dan's ever been on the podcast, guys, so this is a great time. But, Dan, i got to ask you, like I'm asking everybody else, what has been one of the biggest factors for you for finding and targeting
4: mature bucks in your area of the country? The biggest factor for for finding and uh, getting on them is is betting, is finding their betting areas. But I guess uh, beyond that, I mean, i got to find the buck. There isn't a big buck on every property so seeing them is a huge thing for me because you you never really have that you know i know for sure thing until you get eyes on them or get a picture of them or something and there's something about that uh you know when i get eyes on them it's like okay you're dead this is it you know you get that confidence feeling like okay now it's going to happen and then i'll hunt down an area but i spread myself out real thin over a large area and you know um at first in the season unless i'm onto something from over the summer is i'm just hitting a lot of target areas mm-hmm. looking for that sign looking for those huge early rubs and you know and then once i like say maybe i find those huge early rubs and i start focusing on that area there's something in here then i want to see it get eyes on it and i might still hop around and look other places because i don't know if that's happening at night or mm-hmm. what's going on but once i get eyes on them that's a huge factor that's
0: now when you say eyes on this is something that you kinda of brought up a little bit in some of the Q and A and also your seminars with Mario was not necessarily always using trail cameras, mm-hmm. hey, but when you put eyes on, you're talking about doing observation sits typically or Yeah, or,
4: observation it, sits mm-hmm. on foot, um, from a truck. Okay. However you gotta do it. I mean uh you look back and uh ripping apart uh my top fifteen bucks, I think like um I think it's like eighty or ninety percent of them. I was hunting the buck I shot, and I had previous seen it. Um, probably, I think it's like 60 or 70% I hunted for multiple years before I shot him. So, um, you know, there's just that confidence. You know he's in there. Now you can go in there and figure out. There's only so many hiding spots. I mean, people are like, well, I, he doesn't move in daylight. No, they do. There's some place in there you're missing. There's something... That you don't have, and if if you have that mindset that it's like um, it's like you're playing war, mm-hmm. and they know you're coming, and they know you're after them, they're gonna find where isn't he gonna look? I'm gonna hide, and put yourself in his shoes. If I was out here and I was a deer, where would I hide? On me, and I try to find that spot where nobody would look. Mm-hmm. Still has the features that a, um, a a deer needs. Still has like a, an edge or a, a point or something but it's in some obscure place where nobody'd look mm-hmm. i think the biggest thing with hunters is uh, even if you give them all the education is they just want to believe it's the most remote and i'm starting to find a lot of these public properties you go back two miles and that's where you find the most pressure and at least the most um i want to say intelligent mm-hmm. pressure so you start seeing good hunters there who are in the right spots and stuff and you start thinking well the buck that's making these rubs or the buckeye scene or you know if he was living here he'd be dead so where's the niche and you know and sometimes you find out that they're living on the private and coming to the public and you ain't got a chance you just got to move on and you get a lot of guys that will just sit on that uh, piece of public on the fence line waiting and they'll never have a chance because they're putting too much scent there waiting but they're probably not the only one waiting and there's just no chance and you just you know cut ties with a deer you can't kill because you're wasting time and you know just keep moving until you get on one you can kill.
0: And One thing that you brought up multiple times, and if anybody listens to y'all's podcast, you and Josh's podcast, before the Echo podcast, it always seems like overlooked spots always kind of comes up in conversation mm-hmm. and on the forum as well, overlooked spots. And that's something that we've taken into consideration a lot more in the southeast where mm-hmm. we're at, especially in Alabama and Arkansas, Tennessee, Georgia, and Mississippi, where we hunt at and a lot of those overlook spots kind of like you mentioned by parking lots but a lot of it's in areas that's like at least what we found is there's no parking spots but it's 100 yards off the road yeah. and it's like everybody you know, i was talking to uh uh Dieter Cocken earlier about this is that's why he likes to use an e-bike cause he's like you can't park anywhere like you know there's no shoulder of the road you can't park in the road but if you can park down the road come back and go 100 yards into the woods you might find that pocket that everybody's walking past nobody's stopping right there, and. in it's funny because down where we're at, we our public land is so roaded up, a lot of it. There's some of it's a little more remote, but if you do that whole, I'm going to walk a mile and a half in, two miles, you're walking yourself into another road. Right. So it's like it kind of bites you in the butt, and we used to do that, try to walk as far as possible. Next thing you know, you walk up on somebody else who's out there hunting that came in from a different area, and you just walk yourself back into pressure mm-hmm. versus finding those spots that are literally 50 to 100 yards off the road, and that's mm-hmm. where we've seen some of the biggest and best bucks in uh-huh. Alabama, and especially like habitat-wise, it's so different. From like where you're at say in Wisconsin compared down south we just deal with so many pine trees and there's not a whole bunch of hardwoods except in your your streamside management zones your creeks but those pines that are at age where guys can't really get a tree stand in them you know maybe they're eight ten years old mm-hmm. if you get a tree stand you're six foot up but you can't see anything you're looking like pretty much underneath the stand if you sit on the ground it's fairly open but that's where all the bucks want to cruise through and a lot mm-hmm. of times it's right next to those roads and uh, I've got a spot this year I'm gonna try to implement a little bit more of that and try to kill one where there's a big community scrape right there about 100 yards off the road that these bucks are paralleling. Um, But with overlooked spots, we had a guy ask you this yesterday about overlooked spots and you made the point of, you know, all these guys are, are, everybody's. it seems like if you're in this niche of mobile hunting, it seems like everybody's doing this. But if you look at, it's like a fraction of the hunters actually out there. Probably 95% of the guys aren't doing what's being talked about at these Mm -hmm. shows and what you talk about. Um, It just seems like it when you're in those groups and you're on the forums and stuff, and it seems like everybody's doing that. That taking into consideration, especially when it comes to like overlooked spots and trying to get visuals on the deer, is it sometimes it's not complicating as much as in if there's thick cover or some kind of obstruction close to an access point that guys are trying to walk around and go past it, that could be a a likely spot you could find a mature buck in those areas.
4: If it's got cover that could hold a buck, I'm gonna go look at it. Mm -hmm. uh, And I'm gonna specifically go look at overlooked spots where I think when we talk about this, people think, well, I'll keep that in mind that they could be there. And they still go to the remote spots and stuff like that. And I just don't want to compete with people. I'll take that whole public land, and I'll cross 99% of it off, and I'll be just looking at these little patches where I think people don't go. And those are going to be the first places I go. And if I end up in one of those remote places, it's because of what I saw. So I'm right away going to those overlooked spots.
5: Yeah.
0: And and another thing, I don't know if you've dealt with this, and especially more roaded areas, One of our buddies taught us this: is like when you have a Y in an intersection of a road, and there's no parking areas, the center of that Y, because everybody when they come to a turn or they come to a Y in an intersection, they think they're going to keep driving a little bit further in. Mm -hmm. But like that Y of the intersection, is the places that we've had success as well finding a spot where. Bucks living close to the road, but there's thick cover there. You know, yeah. he can get away from that pressure, and nobody wants to get in between that 200-yard gap between the two roadways, and he'll move, you know, just after darker throughout the day in that little hub. And when we've looked at GPS data from the southeast, specifically in Alabama that we get our hands on, we kept seeing that over and over again, how close these bucks, mm-hmm. and especially the mature bucks that were collared, were bedded within 100 yards of the road, which is mm-hmm. fascinating. It's one thing when you personally see it. It's another thing when you see the GPS data of, you know, 60 bucks, and you're like, nearly all these deer are within you know earshot of these roads within 100 150 yards yeah so Th- think
4: about mm-hmm. think about this you know um you get into these solid pine patches and and hard even if it's hardwood or whatever mm-hmm. and it gets a little mature and has understory the only where the sun breaks through if there's a hole a tree fell down or or something is there any kind of um you know real good green you mm-hmm. know good food and deer don't just eat cornfields, they don't yeah. just eat acorns and stuff. They eat vast varieties of plants we couldn't even name. Mm-hmm. You know? Any place where there's a lot of green, right? a little bit of sun hitting, where does that happen? Mm-hmm. In those big forests, yep. right along the road where the sunlight hits the edges. They do a lot of feeding right alongside roads. And then they got cover there too from that same plant life mm-hmm. to live. And then they got a barrier, they got to have that edge because what a, what a mature whitetail needs is an escape. So he needs to, you know, monitor one way, have an escape the other. And if it's something comes from that way, he still has an escape the monitor way, right? Absolutely. So they will take and they'll use the road. They'll use the, the thick cover. They'll use the opening seeing into that hardwoods. And they'll use the wind. And they'll use the thermals. And they'll find some spot along that road where nobody goes because it's not near a parking lot. It's not near a parking mm-hmm. spot. A lot of times you'll see a canal along those roads, right? Mm-hmm. Right on the other side of that canal. I mean, you literally got to walk half a mile to get over. Just as long, much as those guys that are going to the middle competing for those spots. He he's got. You got to go way around to get at them. And you got to get out around from away with the angle with the wind and stuff. It ain't easy. Mm-hmm. It's not like we're, we're not walking the distance or doing the work. But we're hunting where the deer are regardless of whether it looks stupid or not it's the whole uh, dating a fat chick theory you know for those that didn't hear that it's it's you, you know um fat chicks are fun they're not stuck up and they they uh you know they're just happy to be around you you know yeah. but you don't want your friends to see you there right well you get in this tree you're like i sure hope nobody sees me here i feel embarrassed hunting here but those are the type of spots i shoot my biggest bucks
0: mm-hmm. oh. Yeah, and, and like you said, just like the whole fat girl analogy, a lot of people are like they almost feel embarrassed when they find that sign and they and they or they bump a buck. Or how often do you hear from guys that they hike back to their truck after going super far and they bump a buck sixty yards from their truck? Right. It happened last year. I saw an overlook spot intentionally watching the parking area. Now this is on a firearm hunt next to a big clear cut that's about two and a half years old. A lot of broom sedge grass growing up. Pines are about two and a half three feet tall. And you'd always see, it was like on gated road, and when you walked in, you'd always find big buck tracks crossing right there. I mean, 60 yards from the truck. So I'm like, I'm gonna get 200 yards from the truck where it's, I can see all the way back to the truck and just watch that area. And all my buddies, we put four trucks at the gate. All my buddies walked three quarters of a mile <laughs> in. I sat that morning, saw two bucks, passed two bucks, uh, had a really nice eight point come from the truck. I have no idea where he came from, but next thing I know, he's 60 yards from me walking right towards a nice eight point. Filmed him, sent him to the buddies, and they're all like, man, why don't I hear gunshots? I'm like, well, you know, I'm sure we know there's bigger deer here. Let's try to figure out if one of these bigger bucks come through, and they never did that day. But when my buddies walked back to their truck, I could watch them, and they could see me up in my stand. Yep. And again, it's one of those goofy spots, you know, said dating the fat girl. And when they got to their truck, there was a strip of pines, not 15 yards wide, about 30 yards long, next to the trucks they're parked to. When they started their truck up and started talking, a buck got up out of that tree line. 40 yards from him and slipped over onto some private lane and got out and i'd mm-hmm. text him hey you just had a buck right behind you y'all never knew it and he's like really <laughs> i'm like yeah, i'm filming him and filming you at your truck as he's walking away mm-hmm. again it wasn't a shooter but it shows you how well they're accustomed to like if people are walking in if they can hold tight and they're comfortable kind of sitting low and you don't make eye contact mm-hmm. or bump them it almost seems like in those areas even if they smell you they're like after i guess just the conditioning they're used to people not walking in there. They may smell you, but like, I'm just going to hold tight. And then once you get right. out, then they're going to ease off.
4: Even if they, sometimes they don't even ease off. They just get so used to it. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of spots where there's really good buck beds just watching a parking lot or watching an axis. You know, and um, one of the very biggest bucks that I ever shot with a bull, um, field dressed, it bottomed out a 300-pound scale. <laughs> and they're bigger up north, right? But... Uh, oh, God, I can't comprehend that, but okay. Yeah, it was just... Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it was like that big dude at school. You're like, how is that even possible? You know? Yeah. Remember that guy?
0: Yeah. Six five, about three forty. Yeah. <laughs> right,
4: right. Right. But uh, uh, that buck, I was watching him right next to a parking lot. And it's the main parking lot. Uh, like one of the two main parking lots of this big public area. Yeah. And it has a main axis that goes out like a mile it's got like this logging road that goes out like a mile and then it spreads out right and everybody just follows that logging road you know and then it, there's some private land along the you know edges and it goes out like it, um, it kind of like it's an axis easement for mm-hmm. hunters to get back there but it's wide enough you could hunt it you know you know like it's, mm-hmm. maybe the easement's 100 yards across mm-hmm. you know so you get in there you're kind of close to the border but I'm watching this buck get up on the uh, private land right alongside the road, right alongside the parking lot and come out and stage by the parking lot and literally sometimes walk right through the parking lot between the cars and across the road and nobody's at the parking lot at light, mm-hmm. You know, you, so there was two bucks. There was a 140 class 10 pointer in this one and they're both coming out of that bedding staging at one spot, making a scrape there like competing against each other. And when I got everything right, I went in there and shot that thing and literally the whole parking lot was full of cars, and minutes before shooting it, people came out of their cars and walked up the, the, the access pass mm-hmm. 50 yards from me. I mean, you shoot those things right under underneath people. People think that those deer got to be, you know, like are afraid of people they are way back. Where they don't like scent is in their bed and mm-hmm. They are like, uh, they're okay with it being on the access route. That They're used to that. They're used to people occasionally walk around the, the cornfield or the across the acorn flat or whatever, and they will still move there kind of sometimes, you Mm -hmm. know. But, you know, um, I'll get a lot of people that will tell me that, uh, you know, um, every place I show up in my woods, I run into a tree stand. You know, it's the right spot. It's got the point. It's going into the bedding, blah, blah, blah. But there's a tree stand there, and there's somebody hunting there. Would you still hunt there if they're not there? And I have to tell them that, you know, you could probably still kill a good deer there. But when I look at my stats,
6: mm-hmm.
4: all my top 15 bucks that were all over five years old, every one of them was shot in a spot where there was no sign of any hunter before. The majority of them was the very first time I hunted there. So, you know, those bucks figure you out. They, literally, if you look at how many hunters are out there, look at rut, how many hunters are out there. Mm-hmm. If they got up and chased those around, they'd be dead. They wouldn't make it to six years old. Mm-hmm. So if they're six years old, they're an incredible survival machine. And you got to look at that like, where would you go if you're an incredible survival machine? If you were the smartest buck out there, how would you survive? And you don't think about how to hunt, how to, you know, I need scrapes, I need rub lines. Just put all that out the window. Think about where would he hide, mm-hmm. and find that, and then find his sign there, go in and kill him.
0: I've got so much I want to talk to you about, but we got to do a full-length episode. Hopefully, we've talked behind the scenes a little bit, hopefully maybe you can come hunt Alabama this year, you and Josh. That would be I kind would of like interesting. I would like to hunt Alabama. Because I would love to see how everything from like Wisconsin and kind of upper Midwest that you've hunted, how that translates down south mm-hmm. and the similarities and maybe differences between it, and do an episode after that kind of comparing the two. Because I think a lot of southern, we have a lot of listeners that like some guys may know about you, some guys probably don't know mm-hmm. about you, uh, just the area of the country that we're in, but the guys that know about you some of those guys try to apply some of the bedding tactics down south and some areas it works like we found two huge mm-hmm. beds i don't know about a week and a half go scouting and pushing through some real thick stuff right away from 100 where another guy actually one of our podcast guests had a trail camera 150 yards away that we didn't know was his trail camera when we walked past it and these two big bucks that hit on camera last year that are upper echelon kind of deer you know in that 140 150 range are bedded 150 yards from there in a spot that I don't think he's pushed into before. Another little hardwood SMZ little ditch that runs up in a clear cut and they're bedded right there with a ton of overhang canopy covered and there's Mm -hmm. five white oaks right there that's going to be dropping this year. We just Mm -hmm. checked them. Um, And it's like you can find beds in the south, but I want to see especially if y'all come down and try to focus on some of that bedding during that rut time period what y'all could get into, Mm -hmm. especially trying to see, you know, with the average hunter out there what they're doing, trying to hunt all those pinch points which can work, but if they were running around like you're saying they are, or like some people think they are, all of them to be killed. And right. As thick as our cover is down there, there's a reason why they survived to get some serious age on those deer. And,
4: and, and if you got mature bucks running around on there, and and they're running around like people think during the rut, mm-hmm. everybody that sits those funnels would have walls like mine, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and that and that's a good point. So. I'll say this again. We could talk for a whole bunch longer, but I know we got more people coming to the show, so we got here real early. But I appreciate you, Dan, for joining us. And uh, I can hope to see you down in Alabama this year. Yeah. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right, guys. We got on the next segment Garrett Fall from the DIY Sportsman on YouTube. A good buddy of ours. And uh, Garrett, first of all, it's good to see you again. And yeah. thank you for coming out to the expo, man. This is this has been yes, a great time great. so far. Yeah, definitely. I- I've got to ask, and I'm asking everybody the same question. What's been one of the biggest factors for you when it comes to like consistently finding mature bucks and getting on mature bucks, like in your area of the country?
5: Yeah, for me, it's been you know spreading out a wide enough net to find them because. Sometimes you get a, you know, those smaller public pieces and they could have good deer on them or they could not or maybe they start the season with them and then they move off and it's like you're playing that game trying to time everything right and getting to, you know, pull off the private and whatever and it's usually easier I found to go to the bigger pieces where you know that they're going to you're going to find deer that spend pretty much their entire lives on that public. And you still got to find them and it sometimes can still be more work and more boot miles to explore all that land, but if I run enough cameras in the best spots, and maybe not pepper a place with cameras, but maybe over a year learn how the deer behave in a certain area and say, okay, well, if I put one camera here, I get 90% of the intel I would have got with all those other cameras, and then do that again and again and again, and just over several years build that library, then that becomes a little bit easier for me to spread a wide net and say, like, okay, now it's easier for me to figure out which locations maybe this year are going to have big ones, and maybe in that case also you have some historical data to say like oh yeah this buck was really active here like two years ago one year ago and then that for me has been a lot easier than just trying to figure it out on one given piece of land every year
0: oh dude you're getting me excited especially about annual patterns and historical patterns and all that stuff you mentioned one thing that i really want to dive into you talk about using trail cameras and Instead of spreading them out everywhere, you could fine-tune them to get, like, 90% of the data you'd get from multiple cameras in one camera location. Mm-hmm. What does it take to find that camera location, and what are you looking for to get that kind of data from one camera source?
5: Yeah, so initially, if I don't know what's going to be the best, I will put out more cameras. And then maybe in a scenario like that, I look at all the data at the end of the year, and it's like, well, clearly this one had the most activity, and it had the most individual bucks that hit it. So that's the one that I'm gonna use in the future for inventory purposes. And let's you know say an example like a like a beaver swamp area where I go and scout and I find a bunch of places that could be really good, good pinch points, good scrapes, rub, good rub lines. But then it seems like if I can find the best scrape, that's usually where I'm gonna get the most amount of buck activity and the most pictures of individual deer. I had one that I had found, it got log sent, so it's not quite the same as what it used to be. Mm-hmm. But I had a camera over a scrape right on the edge of water, and it had good dough bedding kind of on a hillside leading down to it, just set up perfect. And between, I think it was, I think I put it out on October 16th. And from October 17th through like November 8th, 10th, 12th, something around there, there wasn't more than one day that had gone by throughout that entire stretch where there wasn't at least one daylight buck, at least two and a half or older on it.
0: I, I'm just, One reason I'm smiling over here, Kim probably saw me. If Andrew's here, he'd want to go super in depth on this whole straight <laughs> thought. We probably actually—I've said this to a couple of guests we've had on so far. I might have to do a full-length episode with you on this kind of subject. Because um, I'm trying to think—I've ne- I've interviewed you for Turkey. I, have I ever? Have we ever done a full-length deer Ooh, episode with you? Okay, no. well maybe we got to do that. Um, uh, w- okay, you're talking about like the best scrape in your areas. What kind of features are you looking for the, for the best scrape? As in location to the scrape, from I guess you know pinch points, travel corridors, bedding areas looking branches, like give us like a, maybe there's like an example that comes to mind of like one of the better scrapes you found it, and give us an example of like, what did that actually look like and what made it so good?
5: Yeah. So usually the best scrapes seem to be around areas of doe bedding. Thicker cover, a lot of edge, a lot of diversity. Maybe you got, you know, multiple pockets of does and then you have travel corridors amongst them. And in those areas, I'll find these scrapes and they got good historical sign. Like I found one you know, a month ago in a place like this where you just found the licking branch and the scrape wasn't pawed out, but it's like you're walking through this thick area on the, you know, a doe trail basically, and then it opens up in this little pocket and it's like, oh, there should be a scrape here where, okay, there's a licking branch you go find that's like, you know, the size of your thumb Uh that's sticking down, it's all shredded from years years past. And when you look at those places on the map after you find it and you think contextually, like, oh yeah, there's doe bedding here, here, here. And a buck could also cruise downwind on this, you know, swamp that's, you know, yards downwind and he could send check that scrape too if he wanted to or come right up into it and actually hit it and so that seems to be the commonality is that it's usually dense cover the deer won't have to go far to uh to get into a really secure location a lot of times you can be 40 yards off the scrape and be hidden right and you have a lot of doe activity just generally around those seem to be the types of scrapes that towards the later half of October we will start to get really good and we'll have multiple different bucks hitting them. That might not be the best place to kill. It just depends on the overall scenario. But in terms of at least finding good inventory places, those seem to be the ones.
0: A lot of those scrapes come to mind. Some of the ones that we find. Andrew's a scrape fanatic. Uh, It has an eye for leaking bridges typically I'm looking for timber rattlesnakes where we're at (laughs) when we're walking around So I got my head, you know, I'm looking up But I'm looking down too as we're going through and he's just like I don't know I'll get snake bit And He's like, oh, here's a leaking bridge. Here's a looking bridge We we actually scouted a spot um, two weeks ago that we talked about a previous episode that the second we hit this hardwood drainage uh, It's got ponds and like different age clear cuts all around and you hit this creek bottom And it's all big wad oaks and, and poplars and stuff down there and we start walking. He said, "Man, look at this looking branch. Man, look at that." And like you could barely see the ground. Like some of them were like, you know, I don't know how much activity they had last year, but you know, some smaller looking branches. And then you find one that's like, for sure, this is a community scrape. You could look at like the old pawings, and again, they haven't pawed it in forever. But you can see the how much the ground had been worked and how deep it was dug yeah. out. Then you'd have two or three of those huge looking branches. Again, the size of your thumb. Again, for listeners and viewers on YouTube. Um, and uh, guys, pretty excited. And Then we come to find out we watched another 60 yards, in our, and we didn't know this at the time, but we, we, we found a trail camera. And we didn't know who it was. I man, it's kind of early for our guys to put trail cameras out. Most guys in Alabama are putting trail cameras out the first week of July. And uh, we go past it and come to find out it was one of our buddies, Scott Seals, who's killed a lot of big deer in the same area. A lot of big deer in Alabama. He's been on podcast a few times. Comes out, that was his trail camera. We were <laughs> on it. And we went further in, and I was just telling Dan this. We went f- further in, pushed up another hardwood drainage because this is hill country again clear cuts on top like you know five six year old ponds on top and then these hardwood drainages and this smaller hardwood drainage kind of stopped out in the clear cut after probably like 250 yards and kind of went past the camera had to push through some super thick nasty stuff that was just miserable but found two giant beds there i mean the size of this table even not bigger uh back in there and we talked to talked to uh scott and he's like oh yeah, that same area because we were sharing information after we found out there was his camera he's like oh i had two really big deer in there last year yeah that were like using that area early season i'm like well i think we found where they bed at i don't know how we're going to kill them there if you could kill them there because it's so thick and hard to get into but uh, now you know um but again it was like all those scrapes like there wasn't a scrape where those beds were at they're all further down like with all the thermals falling down to that creek they were all down there by that big creek yeah and like that's where all the sign was at and then you kind of got back up in here and other than like browse pressure you see like the the browse throughout the whole spring and summertime There was no rubs, there was no scrapes, and probably just early season bedding and kind of summer bedding in this location. But um, it was just kind of fascinating how they were just off the does. The does are a little bit further up from where the bucks were bedded at, uh, because we walked by a ton of doe bedding. They were in bigger pines and, you know, kind of a little more open area compared to where the bucks were at. And uh, kind of put all the pieces together. I'm like, okay, that's a pretty interesting spot. But with the scrapes, do you ever see talked about historical uh, uh, historical data or annual patterns Mm -hmm. in some of these areas do you ever see with your trail cameras like a specific buck if you have multiple years of history with them hitting a similar scrape or just bucks hitting a specific scrape at a very specific window of time in the season
5: yeah yeah like uh it seems like frequently you'll have an area that just lights up for like three days where it's like maybe you have generally good activity Mm -hmm. once it starts to get toward like in in my area later October and even sometimes into early November. Sometimes I'll still hit a scrape on like November 10th. Um, But definitely that peak seems to be around like that end of October time frame. And what you might find is maybe it's the same buck, maybe it's a group of bucks, but it can be hard to predict micro, meaning like what direction are they going to come from, when they do hit it, what time of day, like that varies a lot but that general window seems to be really close. And the only thing that I've seen really mess that up year over year is when pressure comes in. You know, I had a, a place where I had historical data from like three years where it was just like a money spot, like 26th or 28th, like I gotta be here. And I went and sat it and I had a good, you know, good weather and I'm like, man, I'm just not seeing what I would expect to see based on what these deer have done the last three years, like what changed. And I'm in my tree and I look over and I see a cell camera sitting over there. I'm like, oh, right. well, that's new and I got around and scouted a little bit and I found another tree stand and like there's clearly like people for all I know had been hunting there early part of the season throughout and and so that I kind of you know marked off on the list and tried to just go back to some of the other spots that I had found
0: yeah it's kind of fascinating like what you're mentioning it's like if you find of these spots that's not really getting pressured it's kind of like it's gonna be similar year over year the second excess pressure comes in and, it, and maybe it's not like just a guy hunting it once but he's hunting it Multiple times, or multiple guys are hunting multiple times, and then kind of will shift that movement. Mm-hmm. Maybe it, who knows in your area, but you know, we've seen it like shifts movement 200 yards, or right. maybe it might be 400 yards from that area to the next best cover type, next best edges, and everything. And like they just start using that, and you know, they'll probably still be on that guy's camera at night, right? Or maybe super early in the morning, but they're not spending a whole bunch of time there moving during legal hunting hours, right? Um, also, another thing with annual patterns, have you learned anything? Like, has there been anything of note that you've used, like kind of taken away from like an annual pattern with that trail camera data that's directly affected you when it comes to like, whether it's hunting a specific deer or a very specific spot that you've had like success with?
5: I've noticed that if I can correlate a certain wind with daylight activity, then I can wait for that specific wind direction. Like some of those little three-day windows, I think some of the reason that that specific three days is right is because of the context around it. Like certainly the, the does that are coming into heat, that's going to happen around the same time every year. But maybe that daylight activity shifts to like the 25th through the 27th in the next year, just because of how the weather patterns come in or the wind direction where it makes sense for them to scent check via that area. And so that I will pay attention to where, you know, if it lights up and it was like right when the wind switched from like south to like a northwest, okay, now I know that that area, you know, these three dates, whenever I have that, if it shifts a couple of days one way or the other, Like, that's when I would go in there, because that's when it probably makes sense. I wouldn't want to necessarily get in and put my scent in that area before I had the right wind to where the deer were going to really start using it in daylight.
0: Awesome. Garrett, let me tell you this. I forgot to ask the other guys this, but I want to start asking you and some of these other guests I'm going to have on. What would be, like, one of your biggest pieces of advice? for guys going to this season who haven't had the consistent success, even finding and locating mature bucks, let it alone trying to kill one, but that's their goal it's like, I want to try to get to be able to kill or find a mature buck. Mm-hmm. What would you tell them to maybe start focusing on for this season that maybe help them get, you know, lined out in the straight direction?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough being this close, at least when, when you think about rut hunting. It's tough now because the best time to scout for rut is either during the rut, like live, or postseason when all that rut sign's really visible this time of year it can be really hard unless you know exactly what you're looking for like i can go into a spot and be like i'm looking for that one licking branch Mm -hmm. and if i find it it's like yes like now i know like i can come back here in october and and, you know really start to put some more time in and scout it then once the foliage is kind of down but if you don't have that it can be tough and it's like yeah we can we talk about locating through scrapes on you know ag fields if you got eggs in the area or glassing or things of that nature but a lot of places I hunt don't really set up great for getting that kind of intel, which is why I happen to rely on the trail cameras as much as I do in that, that type of scenario. But I would say it definitely never hurts to just continue to scout. You know, scout more than you hunt. Like you know, like Dan would always say, mm-hmm. um, and don't get tied too much up into an area. Don't feel afraid to spread yourself out if you're not seeing what you think you want to see. You know, last September, I had hunted in an area where trail cameras weren't allowed. And it was like, you know, as soon as I see the good sign, I'm going to set up. And I went like four hunts in a row where I just kept checking spots and end up right back at the truck. And I never set up because I didn't really find what I thought was going to be good enough to set up on. Just Mm -hmm. never that hot, fresh sign. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, I found it. And I was like, ended up being like 60 yards from the beds. And you could hear them get it right at last light. And it was like, they just couldn't make that last little 60 yards in enough time but what, that, what, was, that was, was more weather-based what kind of sign was that by the way that you
0: found that you're like okay this is it after not seeing that sign the whole time so that was a
5: september hunt so it was isolated white oaks that were falling mm-hmm. mixed with like really fresh droppings okay yeah because a lot of times you'll find oak trees out there and you you get into that area and it's like okay there's there's an oak but maybe it's not dropping right now or maybe it is if like there's acorns everywhere mm-hmm. but it's like if you find one of those oak trees that's getting hit right now it's like there's usually a lot of droppings around and you might find a really fresh rub, even if it's early september so that's usually the kind of sign that I would say, like, okay, this is this is probably worth setting up on.
0: In, was, that, was that Minnesota?
5: Yeah. So, Southerners
0: out there, listen, even though he's from Minnesota, he's still hunting features. all you boys in Arkansas, <laughs> you know, talking about, like, oh, man, that's that's their tactic in Arkansas and a bunch of other states. Yeah, you can still do it in everywhere in the country where you can find the sign. Um, also, uh, God, I know there's so many other questions. We're, we're going to to do a full-length episode because I don't want to take up a ton of your time here at the expo, but – uh, Garrett, appreciate you coming by Appreciate you doing the podcast And yeah, we're going to have to line up to do a full length episode Because I think we can go extremely deep into the weeds of a lot of things So, awesome, yeah, appreciate it, brother Absolutely
2: All
0: right, guys, next on the segment We have Johnny Stewart from uh, Pennsylvania on here, man How you doing, brother? Good, Jake, I'm doing well, buddy hey, Thanks listen, It finally got you in person, man Listen, yeah. had you on the podcast before I'm like, this is going to be fun You know, mm-hmm. unfortunately, everybody Bo Martonic can't be here from the East Meets West podcast I'm going to give him some crap after this But, yeah, you know, yeah. it is what it is uh, I, I've got to get into this, uh, Johnny, with you Real quickly, right off the back, you know, you're one of these guys that's always been, especially in the last few years, but really for a while, have been consistently targeting mature bucks. You've mm-hmm. had a lot of success doing so in a bunch of states that you hunt. What's been one of the biggest factors for that? Again, staying consistent when targeting mature bucks in your area of the country.
2: So I think uh, just anywhere I travel and hunt, I'm always actually see where the pressure is, deer, deer hunting pressure, and use that to my advantage. You know what I mean? So, And also find what the deer... Are going to want habitat and food and whatever, but but look at uh, e scout and find like their ideal habitat, and now with all the info out there uh, and hunting and there's a lot of good hunters, kind of see where you would go and that's probably where most of the hunters are going to want to go to. So lately, and I think it evolves hunting. You know, this public land, people are knowing more about these deer. You just got to stay ahead of it. So it's not it might be the most ideal area on your e-scouting for deer to be but so is that is also true for the people that going in and are hunting so lately i've been just kind of using like a like a nucleus is where the deer would be and also probably the hunters and just working outwards you know a lot of these deer mature deer on this public lands noctur- nocturnal so at some place you know they're going to be in a safe area so i've been looking i call it just I kind of try to dumb it down all my years and all the knowledge and you can get into rabbit holes talking scrapes rubs this and that like where is the safe area that you think these mature deer are going to be and get away it might be an area without rubs without any sign but it's just a safe area so i think pressure is a huge thing hunting pressure is a huge thing that i'm looking for but i use it to my advantage a lot of my buddies are like too many guys there i said okay i said i'd say 90-some percent of the mature deer know that this guy's in here. He's accessing wrong or just leaving scent, or if he's a 6, 8-year-old animal, this has been done before and, and he can associate that and find associ- live by association and mm-hmm. find associate areas with nobody in them. You know, so lately uh, with the hype of public hunting and that just, that's dumbing it down, just finding what I call safe areas. Like, I look for a safe area because you know, you're hunting October to November, and these deer—this is when they're packing on the pounds, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, not November, but October. And these deer are somewhere feeding. They're getting up and feeding and moving around. And these deer are living year to year. And you know, everybody's hunting acorns or whatever it might be. The the—I call it like another analogy I have. I use analogies a lot. Is like you take a photographer, and it takes a picture. You know, and you don't just have the subject in the middle. You have a few things. that are are attractive to you. So like I look at e-scouting and and you have a lot going on in one area and that's almost like that picture. It's not just the subject right in the middle. It's attractive to your eye and it has all these things happening. So that's where the deer like are gonna wanna go to. But like I said, work out from there, find these safe areas that might not have anything. But yeah, pressure is a huge thing. I mean, we can go on about it. I mean, anymore, I don't, really you know all the scrape knowledge and that and people go down them rabbit hole. and i just can't i just looking for safe areas that these deer are going to be in you know so
0: so we, i, I want to hit on this because you brought one of the best points i've heard so far on this podcast um, which is if you look at it on the map and it automatically grabs your attention anybody out there with a similar skill set or skill level that knows how to read aerial maps is also going to be drawn Mm -hmm. into that same area. And that's something we've talked about in the podcast, and I've personally seen that where, like, you find something that looks like the second you pull that piece of public land or whether you're on a private farm whatever, or especially public land because you got a lot of other hunters out there, if it automatically grabs your attention, like, right off the bat you're typically going to go find hunting so you're going to ha- find some kind of hunting pressure mm-hmm. there. if you're looking for like those, those super obvious you know transition edges um especially if you're looking at topo map with habitat edges it's yeah. like diversity you, in you, that area you're going to find a lot of other guys if they're successful and they, you know where they listen to some, some of these podcasts or watch the youtube videos and everything you're going to find pressure there and it's like almost like okay where's that pl- that next best place that like mm-hmm. It takes me a little bit harder, longer to find it on the maps, but when I see it, I'm like, okay, this would make sense. If a lot of guys are going right here in this, say, the, the center of this property where it looks super good, mm-hmm. you have all these habitat edges, all the diversities in this one spot, what's, like, on the outer edge of that that maybe is it from, like, an access point or something like that, but, again, probably could hold some deer, especially if that's getting pressure right yeah. there in the center where all that diversity is at.
2: I go downwind, start there. Um, He's going to come into that area, like maybe take, for example, a clear cut that gets pressured. And then you want to go into these areas, the area that you're attracted to, that has the diversity. You want to go into these areas yearly because I've found where hunters move in and hunt it, and it's bad. Then they'll move out, and then these mature deer, you know, a mature deer will start using that area. The longer he goes without getting pressured, he's going to ease up on, you know, his you know let us guard down to some degree and maybe start using that so you want to go in and check that ideal area yearly you know because there's years i moved out and i told my buddies yeah that's run over guys and they've been in there so they moved in there my buddies and hunted and had success bucks everywhere and i'm like yep so i learned that happens you know because these deer are definitely coming in downwind maybe after dark or right on gray light using that um using the wind to scent check or after dark and then if guys aren't in there like my buddies moved in and hunted area and they were, had success then the following year my buddy's like yeah i'm hunting here again and guys were coming in on e-bikes and that and it just went out the window again but downwind and i talk about like just like s- seems like maybe where two properties meet or i found this year where a buck in the winter i tracked along a highway for almost a, three quarters of a mile and it was he could hear the roar of the highway, no parking spots. And he was had that cushion of 100 yards from the highway, he paralleled it. And on the north side, guys would come in on logging roads and it was like, it was almost like this. There was a, what I call a seam mm-hmm. where he felt safe traveling. There was not much sign of deer, but you find like where two maybe two properties meet or like a, a fence, something, you know, that he can travel and that's a safe area or like i said some of these areas i hunt in in pa are pretty vast Mm -hmm. um to where i talk about these safe areas it could be 50 acres just an area and i talked about october maybe hunting these areas there's got to be some type of vegetation food um they're going to get up and move so they but they're going to do it with their guard down a little bit because they don't really see people in those areas it's they're on high alert when they get into in now you'll see a lot of sign maybe in these places that are attractive to you but chances are it's the yearlings the does and the younger bucks you'll see the rubs but chances are it's at night but then you run into the situation like i said if the guys are out not hunting that area it could be he could be in there you know but he's always you know on guard in them areas and, and it's tough to hunt you know like i said get find these just sometimes just out of way place you might have water some type of you know some type of food even browse they might get their acorns in their mast in them areas at night but during the day he'll just browse and move so it's it's just kind of like just keep working your way out from that nucleus and, and um drop cameras and just be aware of the, the pressure let and me stuff.
0: let me ask you this talk about these safe areas especially if we're taking maybe like some of the places in pa which to me is kind of a little more relevant to like some of the areas in the southeast is in, yeah. you know, rugged areas, a lot of logging activity, mm-hmm. really no ag in some of these areas. In areas with a lot of logging and you have different age clear cuts or cutovers uh, at different stages of growth, do at any point do those clear cuts become one of those safe areas, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, I think uh, it can when, when you have some especially if the pressure's low, but even that, if they have, cl- like, I see, I like uh, cuts that are kind of like a three to four, and but have clumps of trees, though, if they feel secure, and if they feel like they're bumped, um, and they can navigate, if it's a big enough piece of clear cut, there's definitely a chance, um, I think they would use it, mm-hmm. um, but then, again, it might be an area where the normal, or the the, the deer, the, like the does and the yearlings, the, the, the the most of the herd like younger deer are going to use and he's just not going to want to be there you know but i definitely you know if the pressure's not too high i could see them using that you know but i feel like they're so smart these mature deer they don't need to be in that jungle like mm-hmm. they don't want to navigate them trails they're they're, they're going to use these seams um i've seen it where two properties meet near a road like an old homestead that has a a little bit of a different habitat more open but maybe a vantage point maybe it's up high or he or can hear the road people parking wind mm-hmm. and he'll he'll live there rather than be in that jungle you know what i mean not saying he you know if you look at a radio collar deer he you know he's like this he does move but um so i'm not saying he can't be in there but he don't need to live in that he's going to live he's going to find an easier you know he has a big rack and stuff like that he's going to he don't want to walk through that jungle he's going to find somewhere easier smart to um and be aware of where um know where the hunting pressure can going to come like i feel like analogy i use is if you were in your house and someone was stalking you or wanting to kill you like and you're you're going to look out your windows and see someone pulling in your driveway you're not going to be hiding in your closet mm-hmm. h- hiding you want to know where where danger's coming from and be be ready for that so i feel like these bucks are in these areas and we talk a lot anymore about um hunting near parking spots and a lot of times when you just you just change the speed of your vehicle you know going down the road slam the door this and that chances are you already maybe ruined your hunt you know so i think these bucks definitely will get in there um and hunt. I mean, live in them cuts, especially if if he, I mean he'll cross paths with them yearlings and does. But he'd rather be alone, maybe on this edge of the cut. He would. He'd definitely be in there. But um, I would look for the more open areas that has some browse and and stuff for he could. um know where pressure is coming from and be be ready
0: so what's another maybe example of some safe areas that you found maybe in pa Is like habitat edges like i'm, I'm guessing especially in some of these areas just talk about with maybe some of these clear cuts just because it's super relatable lo- relatable yeah. to the southeast you know what would be like a typical safe area like if, if most of the average guys can be drawn to that hard edge of that clear cut especially if it's the newer clear cut what's kind of like something that would kind of draw your attention off that and try to find a safer area that these mature bucks are going to be using off those cuts.
2: So I think anything different out of the norm of the normal habitat. Uh, we were in Alabama last year and I found a safe like right near the road, there was like an old homestead, I was some bring big this trees. Up. Uh there was a, just something like if you spend so much time in the woods and you're in these cuts and I feel like a lot of people have plots and corn, and this is the norm. This is what, mm-hmm. in for a mature deer to live in that situation, he's going to get killed and live with that. He's going to, just something other. It, it could be just an old fence road. Right near the road, they're like the see Maybe it's a power line that parallels the road, and, and then, you know, you go back in the forest, or they got the cuts and that. He might be laying right on the edge, and just some something don't don't look for a lot of sight beds more, maybe shit, mm-hmm. but not, not so much rubs. And, and like I find mature deer, like a lot of times anymore, I don't even want to see a deer trail if I'm hunting a mature deer, you know, these trails that these does live on, I'm not saying he's going to crisscross them, but just cover uh, diversity in a small area that where he can browse during the day, just, just stuff look like for something different happening than the norm, the food plots, the edges, the cuts. Um maybe there's maybe it's just a little piece of open woods with uh, just a little bit of brush, you know, near a road, near a park, near near someone's house. Mm-hmm. Um maybe a little high elevated area that uh just has some, you know, briars or, or some you know, but not the not with the general like uh herd, the deer herd, the the, the does, the fawns, you know, you know. Very
0: slightly separated.
2: Separated I feel and just something a little bit different but smaller amounts of diversity in where you can browse and stuff like that. But just look for not the norm, mm-hmm. you know, where, where you're, you're going in and you see the normal deer acting and, and, and running trails and cuts, and I just feel like that's what you're going to see is the, the normal deer population, not the, you know, small percentage, you know what I mean?
0: How do you see big bucks or mature bucks using more steeper terrain for bedding and traveling, compared to like more more gentle rolling hills, like if you have like some of that steeper training areas, do you ever see for some reason some bucks tend to like lean towards that a little bit more?
2: So yeah, I think if it's I've like rugged areas, mm-hmm. you know, less accessible areas, um, and and I tell people how a lot of people don't like to go down on a, a steep hillside and hunt um, like a deer. I've followed I track deer enough um, in the snow and just in general, um, their you you see their toes, their hoofs are only maybe that far apart. So they're almost walking like so. If they're walking on a hillside, traversing on a hillside, for me and you, it's tough to walk on a hillside. But it's they use a topo line. Um, it's almost like them walking on a flat piece of ground. You know, they'll okay. they'll travel a topo line you know easily and that's not you know people look down I used to look down at steep hill he ain't going to want to walk on that steep hill I don't like walking on a hill but our feet are this far apart our walk so then you have an elevation change of one foot so that's tough for him Uh, a steep hill you know definitely an insignificant trail maybe it's just some leaves toughed up Um, especially if you got a lot of pressure maybe top and bottom Um, yeah something rugged tough to get to and I feel like these deer you know they don't they like a like uh, uh there's kind of a seam that they kind of stay in. They don't you know they don't just go up and down mountains like they're they're efficient with their 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 um you can see uh like coming out of spring, out of winter they're still fat compared to the other deer. They're they're real efficient with their energy. So they they might change elevation a hundred feet, maybe fifty feet, but there's like maybe a cushion of area that they stay in, and it, it's a lot of times it is on the hillsides where they're not bothered, and you know they can they can either get thermals. um fallen or rising you know stuff like that I, and I feel like there's there's they they feel like they're hidden more you know um, or on them ridges maybe a narrow like a spine or something they're just really exposed I seen deer just over the ridge bucks mature deer just I feel like they could see the ridge but their body's not exposed you know I feel like they're 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 safe on them hillsides and, and rugged area and I think keeps a lot of people away in them areas you know well so.
0: going into this season for guys like well, I want to try and get your piece of advice for somebody. If if there, we have listeners out there that haven't had the consistent success finding, targeting, and even getting opportunities at mature whitetails, but that's our goal. Like some people it might not be their goal, but for, for a guy's goal, they want to go out and find and target and try to kill some mature whitetails, no matter in the area of the country they're in. What would you tell them is something to focus on going into this season to hopefully get them on the straight and narrow path to start building confidence in order to have that success?
2: So... Like, if you're looking for a mature deer, there, there's three things I used to talk about that they kind of need to, to survive, is, is terrain, you know, something rugged, um, cover, um, or something inaccessible, maybe a, across the lake, river, or something so flat, maybe uh, on an island. I don't know, the were mm-hmm. three things that I feel like you find that, you first you're gonna find a mature deer, you know, then bring in uh, consideration if anybody you know and if it's inaccessible chances are you know or w- bring into consideration where people are going to enter mm-hmm. you know and you m- might have to do the opposite of what most people are going to do but um just be aware of i think the hunting pressure because it's pretty much everywhere you know and just get away from where the normal people are going to be um get find that cover find the terrain and something inaccessible to where these deer are going to live um maybe the rut is crazy i used to always take off and hunt the rut but it's hard to predict deer and, and guys are a lot of guys are in woods maybe not just uh finding a place where hunters aren't but mm-hmm. the times that hunters aren't there also maybe a late season type time when guys are out of there they you know and they need to feed more they're going to be back into that area that guys aren't so it's not just or maybe real real early i'm going to try to focus on some rugged areas this year and some mountain areas early early you know where the pressure's not there yet you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but um be optimistic you know and just you gotta have a good work ethic you know and and talk to other people but don't it's kind of like a balanced scale like don't listen to everything you hear but talk to as many people as you can listen to podcasts and draw your own conclusions you know and and it's not black and white and so hopefully that maybe helps people out and take yeah
0: there's there's a lot of gray area in whitetails and like you said you got to take everything with a grain of salt but you got to figure out you know someone who you can relate with their hunting style and maybe a similar habitat area that you hunt in and try to go out and, and test it for your own area and do a good job with it don't test it one or two days actually put some time into it and see if it works for you. Yeah. Because when we have listeners that do that and they find a guest that we have on the podcast, maybe like yourself, who you do, you do, know, they do something a very specific way that a listener is like, I, I think I can replicate that. That's when we start having listener success stories come in. We mm-hmm. have hundreds of those that come in every year where guys find a guest or two that they really enjoy. They may, they listen to a lot of the episodes, but they find one or two guests that do something very similar to like maybe their air of the country and you know, a style that they get along with. And they implement it and they start killing big deer yeah. and killing good deer yeah. and they're having more success and they're building more confidence and then that's just going to keep compounding even to more success so um, I think it's a really good point like you got to take everything with a grain of salt listen to everybody yeah. but also figure out it realistically what could work in your area and actually go out there and do a good job testing it don't test it for a day or two scout for a day and two and say this doesn't work you actually got to put some time into it and, and trust the process and when you find that success start replicating it and ask why why did yeah, you have yeah, success ask yourself
2: a lot of questions why why and and, and, and uh-huh. There's more than one way to skin a cat, and and I try to, t- to stay away from. This is how you do it. This is you listen to other people and draw your. You know, like I used to talk have analogies where I'd say, Hey, when I was younger, I had a a toolkit for you know working on a car. Now, like 30 years later, I have a huge toolbox with. So, like hunting's the same that um, you need a lot of tools in your toolbox for working on this vehicle or that vehicle you're, you're not just going to use like a 9 wrench to take off every bolt and work on a car you know mm-hmm. so the more tools you have in your toolbox the more things you can work on you know it's just like hunting the more things that you have learned in the different situations you can apply you know your tool or what you have learned out of your tool bag to, to work in this situation but listen to everybody and but draw your own conclusions you might see something that nobody else sees or and then it's a lot of it's situational. away you know scenarios are all different there's so many variables mm-hmm. like your area might be kind of comparable to what johnny stewart said in this area mm-hmm. but then dan Infall said this here so mine's kind of halfway between mm-hmm. so let's pull a little bit here and a little bit here you know maybe it fits my area because i've had people ask me a lot of questions uh, maybe show me a e-scouting map and say where would you hunt them like they asked me one question. I'm going to ask you 25. I mean, yeah. this is like, there's a lot to um, know because I've been in so many scenarios and there's no two identical scenarios out there and hunting, you know, there's, the hunting pressure is different to landscapes, different to habitat all over. The, I've hunted enough areas, enough states that it's diverse. It's changing everywhere. So mm-hmm. it's like. You know, and I talk about the balance scale. Like one time, I would do something to get a result. It'd be like this, and then another time, I do the opposite to get this result in a different state or something. It's like you're doing different things. You said, like, if you listen to someone says do this, hunt this way, you got to be careful. If he's hunting um, the identical area that to you, which is hard to find, you can go an hour away and it's going to be different. You know, so if you're listening to this guy talk about how to do it, this is how to. This is what to do and you're an hour away, and you might be able to use it, but then if you're three states over, it's like, that doesn't work for me. But that doesn't mean, you know, listen to what he says and maybe a scenario that you come up on, but um, that's what I like about the hunting is these mature deer, there's no two. Every time I go in the woods, it's changing, whether it's a place I go to every year or a different state, Mm -hmm. you know, different deer die off, the habitat changes, they log, different hunting pressure, and you gotta keep learning all that shit. That's
0: the most frustrating thing about hunting Timber Company, or timber timber Timberland, where there's there's no guarantee when there's going to be another cut happening and you know, mm-hmm. how much it can change the overall deer pattern like you hunt a spot for two or three years you kind of figure out what the deer are doing based off how the habitat and how the existing clear cuts and everything are in this property and then they come through and cut another ridge and you're like well crap you know that kind of changed stuff because yeah. now you have all this you know especially in the summertime this fresh new growth that they're going to feed on they're going to shift bedding just a little bit now when the mm-hmm. hunting pressure comes back then they're going to shift around and then that maybe thicker ridge top that they cut now it's just a wide open
2: space that nothing's really going to be using all that much and last year I, I made a mistake of using historical data so i hunted last year in an area that was really productive the year before and there was a little bit of a change of a cut and i hunted it put too much eggs in one basket and i hunted there and the deer weren't there last year and, I, and so it's like and i'll i'll struggle with you know just hunting this spot because this worked last year and you hunt like t- two spots last year that i picked out it's like these are good they were good last year and I didn't worry about scouting too much. I hunted these spots, and it, it was pretty much a bust, you know. And The one area, I don't know if I was putting some scent in there, and the other area it was a little bit of a change and a cut. Things just changed, like, and they were doing some work in the area, and I said, you know, and I was still, now they're here, they're here, and and uh, I stuck with it, and have, you know, other options available, you know, don't just, you know, I've done it many times where i would caught a deer in an area, and I said, he'll be here next year, and, I mean, I lost him for two years. I found him two years later, uh, half a mile away. But why wasn't he here? You know, who knows? Maybe another deer, deer come in, pushed him out, or he'd been bumped too many times, too many hunters, you know, but it's always changing and, and stuff like that so.
0: absolutely well johnny appreciate you joining us the podcast thanks for coming to the expo it's great to finally see you again yeah. i was surprised i didn't know you were gonna be here dude and on thursday I saw you guys or friday whenever it was when y'all got here and i was like okay this is gonna be fun dude yeah, yeah. now we're gonna have a freaking party it's a good so time. awesome appreciate you coming right, brother thanks, thanks for Jacob. joining the podcast
2: yeah. all right brother
1: to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the precision hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far?
1: Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, thirty and fifty, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from thirty to fifty. And the fifty-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when I, we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke
0: and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option the same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you could head over to TrueLockChokes.com. lock that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at TrueLockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give Trulock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun, and shoot with a more deadly pattern with Trulock. All right, guys, next on the podcast. Next on this segment, we've got Josh Talker from the Before the Echo podcast. Josh, how you doing, brother? Good. How are you? Doing well, man. Let's get, hang out a decent amount this uh, this whole event here at the Mobile Waters yeah. Expo. I was going to say, doing live stream podcast for mm-hmm. Before the Echo and everything with Dan. Yeah. Um, it's been pretty awesome, but I've been wanting to get you on the podcast and talk about, especially in the last few years, what's been like one of the bigger factors for you when it comes to consistently getting on and finding mature bucks in your area of the country? Yeah, so I
7: live in southern Indiana. Um and I travel all around the country hunting. Though I, you know, I hunted in six different states last year. Just, um, a, you know, a plethora of time in the in the woods recently mm-hmm. in the last few years. And the biggest thing for me is uh, to to get on big deer and, and more deer is I I do whatever I can to lay my eyes on a buck. I killed I killed four bucks this year, and uh, three of the four and the three out-of-state ones, uh, I laid eyes on them either the day I killed them or the day before I killed them. And I think a lot of guys um, kind of get married to an area. Mm-hmm. Like, you pick a spot on a map out-of-state, and you're like, I'm going to go hunt this area, and then you kind of sit around there and, and try to, you know, hope a buck into into range. And I think if you can just start uh, any kind of hunt, whether it's your home state or out-of-state, by just, either driving around or, or putting your your boots on the ground and, and scouting until you either find some extremely fresh shine that you are confident was hat with, has, has been recently done or lay your eyes on a on, on a buck i think that's that was my key of becoming more successful um my wisconsin buck i killed last year he ran in front of me um driving home from a hunt our, our first hunt and uh happened i I just pulled the map up real quick i'm like oh there's public land here Mm -hmm. that he ran into and uh killed him the next day and then same with nebraska i i bumped him the the uh evening before season started and went in there the next evening Uh, on September 1st and killed him so same with Ohio Uh, Ohio was a little bit different it was a a rut hunt so Mm -hmm. things were going crazy Crazy. in Ohio but I saw him two hours before I shot him you know I was I was scouting my way in I looked up and I saw him um kind of being chased around by another buck and went and sat in there and and I think uh a lot of guys just get fixated on um I have to be you know I picked this spot out this is where I'm going to sit whereas you got to be where the deer are and the best way of being where the deer are is putting your eyes on
0: one let me the the wisconsin deer that's something that's really interesting to me is you saw him cross a road on the public yeah and you p- pulled up your maps saw it what was your game plan going into hunting that deer because i think it's happened to me it's yeah. happened to probably a lot of listeners where they've had a situation they're driving through some public or next to some public they see that big buck cross maybe just before legal light maybe during legal light yeah. or even just after legal light and they're like whoa what, what was your steps in order to trying to pinpoint that deer and, and killing the next day
7: yeah so uh, I'll, I'll walk back and kind of describe how we, we saw him. Uh, me and Dan were hunting uh, a different property, um, kind of, you know, same general area, but mm-hmm. down the road from this spot. And uh, I don't know exactly what time it was. It was after dark, um, maybe by an hour, you know, whatever, however long it took us to get back to the truck and drive down the road. And uh, we looked out to the right, and he was standing in a cornfield just to the right of the road. Um, and he was, it was a gigantic cornfield. Um, so, to me, the, the uh, initially I was like, "Oh, he, there's no way he came from not no way, but probability is he didn't come from all the way back there already mm-hmm. this uh, this early in in the in the nighttime or whatever you want to call it after dark." So um, I kind of like maybe he crossed the road because he was right next to the road down into where there was some public land. Um, and Dan wrote it off. He just was like, "Ah, you're not going to kill that thing." Um, he'll tell you that too. But uh, uh, that that afternoon, then I didn't mess around with him in the morning. I just left it, and then around one o'clock, I uh, I, I parked in the in the parking lot, almost right where he crossed. He's right next to the parking area, but uh, I just I just kind of made my way down to where I thought I could find some sign, because mm-hmm. um, there was actually another field right there on the other side of the road that he came off of. But then it was real quick turned into a river bottom, and I got down in there. and I saw a really nice fresh rub. I'm like, oh, this is good, you know um and then that river that was down there the river bar made a really nice oxbow and i'm like i bet some deer if if and this was getting to be it was like october 19th so it was getting to be kind of ruddy mm-hmm. um and i'm like oh if there's if he's down in here he has to come through this oxbow right here Either coming in or out of it and i i uh there was only one tree you could set up in it was it was like a marsh grass river bottom area cool. and i i was sitting i don't know probably as high as your um your sign there mm-hmm. just 10 feet off the ground and he did he came right through the the pinch of that oxbow i shot him at like whatever 15 yards and what
0: time did you get that shot off
7: oh i mean i i went in uh i went in the woods around one or so and i was setting in i probably got set up finally around three after i kind of slowly made my way in there and assessed everything um i probably shot him maybe i don't know probably four o'clock if i remember right which uh on central time up there. So it's oh, not quite as late as what you'd think. Yeah, but,
0: yeah. That's what I'm saying. So he was moving yeah, a decent early. bit before, you know, yep. darkness was going to happen. Yeah, it was. It wow. was. Uh,
7: I, I got back to the vehicle before it got dark. So, um, not with him, yeah, but absolutely. I Yeah, I got my stand back off my back and so, all that stuff. So, dark. so
0: th- well, that's that's really interesting. Just be based off like that observation, because like you know, Dan talked a little bit about having an observation too, and you know, some of it's not super relatable when you're like, okay, glass and fields and stuff like that. Yeah. At least for some of the guys in the Southeast, if you're not hunting that kind of ag, but. In that situation where you kind of saw him off to the side yeah and just assumed based off how far he was from that public he's probably coming from the public cutting that sign, did you ever cut any big tracks in as well going in there or was it pretty much that that it, rub well, that really it was, caught the, your attention? it was
7: mostly the rub i'll be honest with you like it was uh it's that marsh grass so mm-hmm. I, they're not not like leaving a whole bunch of tracks um but no i did i never uh it was more just i laid eyes on him and there was i mean the the rub was super fresh like you could tell it had been made recently um and it just it was just like a process of elimination then next you like i look at a map like okay if i was a big buck i think i'd be in this oxbow and um or or i'd be at least coming through to check that oxbow you know Mm -hmm. and that's what he was that's what he was doing that's
0: Um, that's pretty awesome yeah now also with that so like for you it's talking about really like trying to find the freshest sign the freshest sign is actually Mm -hmm. visually seeing the deer number one yeah so if you can get observation on him and you can kind of figure out what he's doing take that consideration yeah like but how are you doing that especially if you like bump that deer like say like your nebraska buck you know you Mm -hmm. bumped him the night before Mm -hmm. what was the plan because since you bumped it what do you see you smell you a little bit of both yeah i think
7: it was more of a hear thing for that buck okay um i mean he there's a chance he saw me but it was one of those things where uh you got to read it like you like that buck um I bumped him, so if, I don't know if you guys can imagine this, but it was like, uh, in, in Nebraska, it's a bit different than in the Midwest or the South. There's a lot of open, like, plains areas. And then it was, there were some draws in the in the middle of these open plains, and they were full of oaks, the draws were. Mm-hmm. And then on, that was the low area, and then on top was the plains and the crop fields and all that other stuff. So these bucks were bedding in these draws.
0: Mm-hmm.
7: And I, was, I had scouted this giant piece of public, and I was actually walking back to the truck and I was probably a hundred yards from the the road, and I'm like, oh, I haven't looked at that draw yet. It was right alongside the, the road, and I'm like, I'm just gonna go over there. I don't have anything else to do. It was like it was the day before season. I was just sitting around um, anyway. If I if I wasn't gonna be uh, scouting, and uh, I just went in there and I was going real slow, and I got into that uh, that draw, and I kind of looked up. I heard something. I looked up, and there was two bucks in that draw, and uh, one of them kind of spooked out of there and and ran off but it wasn't real hard and the other one actually jumped up and just like looked at me for a while i just stood there uh real slow and I, he would they, you could tell he was just kind of looking around like trying to figure out what what did they heard walk in there and he just kind of turned around and walked off um so i knew i didn't like you know i wasn't like a <laughs> and yeah. all that stuff going out of there um and uh you know, and this is September 1st. Mm-hmm. Granted, so they're on this summer pattern. They haven't been hunted yet all year, um, so that's all that's all factored factored in. You know, and I'm not in Michigan here where they've seen, you know, 40 people the first day of season or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he he, uh, I I came in. I didn't didn't mess with him in the morning. I just stayed out, slept in, and that evening, and it it got dark there like 9:30. It was you know early season, um, and then that evening. I went in there. I went in there early too. I got in there at like two o'clock, and I. Uh,
0: is, I this, is this on the Beast on the YouTube channel? Yeah, all uh, both of these hunts are. Pretty heavily timbered bottom. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I remember watching this hunt because yeah. he came. Did he come across like the drainage from you, kind of walk, working down the edge of it?
7: Yeah, and he he uh, he walked with over twenty yards and into those oaks to feed. Okay. And uh, I end up killing him. He's just a nice nice ten pointer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So,
0: uh, interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, because uh, it makes – once you were explaining, I'm like, okay, I've seen that video before. Yeah. And and that was kind of interesting as well just by, based off, again, that kind of soft bump and, or getting him up. He didn't really know, and he kind of eased off. The, the younger deer kind of yeah. probably saw you, heard you, whatever, and then yeah. he got out there a lot hotter. Yeah, um, Andrew did it last year in Georgia, similar situation in, in early season. We were in Georgia, jumped a buck up out of a bed in a draw in, in, a, draw in a small drainage uh, around a clear cut, and – it was probably more of a hearing thing as well i don't think the deer smelled him and i don't think he could see him because when he got up andrew could kind of make out his rack but not great when he mm-hmm. got up by like, probably 50 60 yards from him he went back in there and hunted that same spot in the morning around that bed thinking that buck would probably come back to bed It was gonna be a little bit cooler that morning come back a little later and he shot the buck come back in there like at nine o'clock nice um uh, nice. so whether it's that buck or another buck right came right back in within 20 in yards of that bed uh and yep. killed it and uh which is again kind of interesting because you hear like guys the southeast say you can't do that but and yeah because that's that's our thing you hear a lot of guys in southeast and we've even said this on the podcast sometimes it's like it's hard to translate some of the beast stuff down in our area it seems mm-hmm. like in some areas where it's like it's hard to pinpoint a bed that they're using multiple times mm-hmm. it almost seems like they shift around a little bit with some mm-hmm. of those deer but every now and then you'll find that buck and you'll find that buck that like just at the time of the year you're there he's using it a decent amount mm-hmm. and go in there and actually kill that deer in and around that bedding location yeah um which is kind of fascinating so uh, one one other thing I wanted to kind of break with you, since you do travel a good bit, and also uh, you said draw, which I was a little happy about. You know, you, you do got a little southern twang yeah. to you, okay? <laughs> you know, that's so, uh, you know, you, you might be in southern Indiana, that's more north than Andrew would call the south, but, you yeah. know, you might be a designated, like, you know, part, mm. partial southerner yeah. at yeah. that point. There's a lot
7: of rednecks in there. Yeah, my area.
0: dude, I like it, man. So I want to ask you this, guys, kind of a, a final thought for this segment. Going into this season, if, if a guy, you know, some, a listener to the podcast, hasn't had the consistent success you know his goal is to try to target a mature whitetail mm-hmm. publicly probably probably doesn't matter but he's been struggling what would you tell them what would you tell them or give them a piece of advice to focus on this year to help them get on kind of a straight and peril uh a straight and peril a straight and narrow path to kind of build some confidence on and hopefully start building some su- some success with that
7: yeah i would just um uh, instead of like feeling like you have to be in a tree or wh- whatever your uh, preferred method of hunting is mm-hmm. like i would just Keep scouting until you feel that confidence and you see that uh, that sign or you see that buck. Um, I think too many people are like, oh, it's 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 3:30. I have to get in a tree now, and they just go up and it's like now you're just wasting your time setting over this uh, you know blanket of nothing. Yeah. Um. And and then on top of that, you know, I think the people do that because they're afraid of making a mistake. And and you have to just go out there and and make a bunch of mistakes until you you know you know push the envelope too far and bump that buck too hard um, and learn from that and then use that information that you gain from having an encounter with a deer uh, to to make your next move more calculated. And I think people are so afraid to make some kind of a move that they are they're almost too timid and they end up they end up out of the game all the time because uh, they're worried that they're going to spook a deer out of the country. And in reality, dude, they don't go very far, mm-hmm. like like I said I we we uh, you may not count that Wisconsin buck as spooking him per se cuz we we're in a truck you know mm-hmm. I'm sure 100 trucks drive by him you know every week but, but the rest of those deer like the Ohio buck all of them they they knew I was there for at least a, a few seconds you know um, so I mean there was a there was a study in PA that showed that like those uh there's a there's a thousand or so deer collared and Dude, they don't go very far like they don't like the, the mature deer just don't move very far um from where they're comfortable they there's a reason that uh they're they're laying there there's a reason they they spook they're going to come back more than likely um and and set up camp again where they're comfortable and they know how to detect danger coming into where they're living so
0: yeah, yeah we've i brought this up in the podcast before if because you'll hear guys talk about like you spooked that buck he's not turning you're never gonna see him again for the rest of the year he's out of the country yeah. but if, if he totally moved that far that's how they'd get shot. And yeah. that's, that they would never make it to five or six yeah. years old if that was the case. If they yeah. were, Every time they got bumped, they completely shift to a new area. Yep. And and that's when I've looked at some of the GPS data as well. And, like, you look at it. And, like, you can't – I don't know the data that you had if you had hunter data as well about actually deer and hunter encounters. Mm-hmm. But, like, you see where how close a lot of these bucks are bedded to the road yeah. and access points. Mm-hmm. That was the eye-opening th- thing for us. Like, probably with data, I think it was – I think it was – 18 or 20 bucks down south alabama at auburn Mm -hmm. uh university of auburn or auburn university whatever they say it uh did a college deer study on both public and private land and how close like 85 percent of those deer were to access points and like roads yeah and like maybe not like parking lot but like maybe you have a gate There's, there's a gated road that you have to walk in from and they're bedded like in a little low spot or like a little secondary point right off that road like 60 yards from the road yeah and you're like most of these guys are walking in way past and they can hear you walking down the gravel road dude, yeah. if, you're, if you're popping gravel in your boots and it's like they know you're there and it always seems like the second night time would hit you know they're kind of like moving around in that little bedding that little tight little core area and the second nighttime hit they're up on that road yeah and they're crossing the road or that they're swinging around checking part of it and it makes you wonder when you watch a buck all fall because we we had everyday data of, of these deer that andrew put into a map format because it was just data points that he got he plugged into maps and everything so we actually see hour by hour uh data points of where this buck was or these bucks were at and how they shifted around and like some bucks you know they all have different personalities but some bucks would have a little bit wider i guess nighttime home range others not so much mm-hmm. they were like for you to be on that deer you had to be within a 50-acre yeah. spot, or you would never even know yep. the deer was there.
7: Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Uh, and that's in a, a little bit more of a timber, country, clear-cut kind of habitat area, no ag or anything there, and it's like they weren't ranging super far. And then you could see the uptick as we started getting close to the rut, and these bucks are doing these excursions, you could see it on the map, yeah. and you could see all these points and how they get out wider mm-hmm. and wider, and all of a sudden, one day, this buck goes from being in his core area to three quarters of a mile away in an area he hasn't been to all fall Hmm. and he's there for two days and then he comes back hot day over there or something i guess man and it's like it's fascinating um but yeah no i think that's a really good point again kind of guys start focusing on some of that stuff and really trying to focus on building that success and also probably asking why this is something that you probably do a lot i think a lot of guys do this without even like noticing it but like why am i seeing this on why am i seeing this Mm -hmm. buck here or why am i not seeing what i should be seeing in this area is there a other hunting pressure here and you look around there's a stand hanging there or Mm -hmm. there's a camera hanging there Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think the more people start asking why like why is this working why is this not working you'll start getting to the bottom of the question of like how these bucks are using these areas and how can i go about finding these bucks and staying on these deer throughout that fall Yep awesome for sure well hey josh real quick if someone wants to listen to the before the echo podcast how can guys watch the live stream version and also yeah. get the audio version if they want to check it out
7: yeah so the audio version is always uh, on any of your typical podcast listening platforms um and then me and dan do uh the the actual show live on youtube on the before the echo uh youtube channel uh that's usually we we do them pretty consistently on thursday nights and we try to do one other one during the week so there's usually two that pop up uh every week Awesome. Yeah, awesome. when you get on there and ask Dan questions or myself, and it's, it's a pretty cool little uh, system we have to interact with the fans. And we so. says
0: Dan, some listeners might not, but does, doesn't know, but it's Dan Infault. Yeah, it's Fault. Yeah, to give everybody an idea. Yep. But, yeah. And then
7: all the hunts and stuff I do are on the Hunt and Beast channel.
0: Yep. Awesome. So. Well, perfect. Yeah, awesome. Perfect. Well, Josh, thanks for joining us, Yeah, brother. thanks
7: for having me on.
0: All right, guys. In the next segment, we are joined by Tyler Westell of Indiana. And Tyler, do appreciate you joining us on the podcast.
8: Thanks, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm super excited. So you've been staying with us at Airbnb, and I, I met you last year at the last uh, year's uh, uh, Mobile Hunters Expo that was in Ohio. Yeah. Um, but got to learn a little bit more about you and your hunting style. Really, just because we stayed at the Airbnb together and start hearing stories. Um, I my do. I, I felt like we had to do a segment on this podcast episode. So I want to kind of get into. You know, for you, what's been like one of the biggest factors for you when it comes to finding target mature bucks in your area of the country?
8: Uh, a lot of e scouting. Okay. I use a lot of Onyx, Hunt Stand, um, Spartan Forge. Google Maps does a lot for me. Just looking at, I like to go back on Google Maps and look at um, the history, mm-hmm. the dates. You know, you go back and you can see a lot of those uh, edges that weren't there before like old fence rows and stuff that are growing up. Um, That's really what I use a lot to find those big deer.
0: So with aerial scouting, this is something I love to do and use proper old fence rows. And I've hunted some spots where like, You'd have to go back pretty far on some of that aerial imagery, but you find these old fence rows growing in places that used to be old pasture. Now, if you looked at it on recent imagery, it's just big timber, big timber, and then you get in there and all those bucks are running that old fence row, and there's Mm -hmm. big trees growing up around it, and it's just some thick cover, maybe some cedars and stuff mixed in. Um, So I want to pick your brain on that, but a little bit more about the e-scouting. What do you think is some of the biggest factors for you when it comes to the e-scouting aspect? as in what's going to hold a mature buck or or you're catching a mature buck transitioning from one area to another? Like what are some of those things that maybe pop up at you when you're looking at aerial imagery, especially maybe say like, you know, Google Earth or Onyx or anything like that where you're kind of going back and you're trying to figure out, you know, why should a big buck be in that area?
8: So I can talk about a current spot that I'm I'm scouting right now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's public southern Indiana. Um, So I have it, how it's set up is it's hill country the with um a ridge system that dumps off into private bean fields and then on the edge of that private bean field there's a public swamp that's there too crp cattails pin oaks and what i'm looking for is that diversity it's create there's just tons of different edges there you have swamps you have the hill country that bucks like i mean it's just I'm looking for different stuff like that.
0: So, anywhere where you find a lot of that diversity kind of in one area, that's going to be a hot spot that you're going to kind of pay attention to and get in there. In and, and your opinion, with that diversity, because I kind of get my thoughts on it, but why do you think those mature bucks like traveling or being in those areas with all that habitat diversity?
8: Um, for me, I think it's you know, they have the early season beans, they got their red oaks, they got their white oaks, they got those, um, they got the native grasses in there, tons of cover, water. I mean, it's, that deer doesn't have to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's there hidden. And I will say, I went over, when I did go scout that the other day, when I came in from the parking lot, the wind was blowing from the parking lot to where he was bedded. I actually bumped him out of there and he was bedded kind of like in a little bit of an oxbow Mm -hmm. overlooking the swamp. He was still kind of in the hill country, but overlooking the swamp and I bumped him out of there. And, uh, that's. I mean, it's just perfect setup
0: now in, in that kind of situation and that, you know, the aerial scouting and finding that diversity has been a huge factor for you when it comes to like having that success. How do you like to go about using that in hunting? Is this something that when you find that diversity, will that work at any point in the season? Do you like that a little bit more for like the early season rut hunting or, you know, what, what is your thought process on those super high diversity areas and do they hold bucks throughout the year? Or is there certain times of the year that it's more proficient?
8: feel like they can hold deer all times of the year I mean I've I hunted out in Illinois late November last year and I not late November mid-November and killed one out there and it's same thing swamp uh hill country and it's still holding still holding deer
0: also do you feel like some of those areas gets a little bit more pressure with that diversity do you feel like there's other guys that like are looking for that is it still kind of less Discussed or, or less focused on by, like, the average hunter out there on public land?
8: The av- I would think the average hunter. I feel like some of those guys, man, they they feel like they just have to get out really far. And some of these deer I've killed, like the one I killed in Illinois, I was 400 yards from a parking lot. Uh, one I killed here in Indiana last, uh, two years ago, I walked 30 years, yards out of the woods and I can see my truck and sit in the parking lot uh i feel like i feel like it probably does get looked over a little bit especially if it's not as far as a walk
0: that's the thing it's like it's one thing if you find that if the guys are looking at the map and that you know habitat diversity's a mile in they're like oh that looks good it's far f-, you know it's farther from the parking lot you know i can get away from pressure even though they're probably gonna walk in with other guys doing the mm-hmm. exact same thing versus if you find that habitat diversity a little bit close to the parking lot that might be one of those things that guys are lo- overlooking because it is so close to the truck like the the buck you said you killed in Indiana, that you were like, you could walk out thirty yards from the woods and you could see your truck. W- what made that spot or like that kind of habitat so special? That like you keyed in on that. Was it some sign you found in addition to the aerial imagery?
8: Um yeah, it it was a pine thicket sitting at the bottom of a rut funnel with um a big creek bottom, a lot of burr a lot of um, thickets, mm-hmm. thicket, a lot of that nettle stuff, tall grasses down there and honestly i didn't even scout that area that year it's a place that i've hunted for the last three years and we always have deer there walking through that thicket beginning of october so i was like uh opening day i'm gonna go sit there sure enough opening day 9 nine thirty. 30 here he comes oh on so, a morning hunt too opening yeah day. okay well let's hunt.
0: talk about that a little bit you know i hear you know we're from the southeast and You know, I I still love hunting mornings in the early season, but you see so much in outdoor media, especially like some of the real big name people, uh, not necessarily in the mobile hunting space, but like if you think of outdoor television, Mm -hmm. oh man, you don't hunt mornings October, you wait until maybe that last couple days of October start hunting mornings, but you're hunting mostly evenings. What's your thought process on hunting mornings, especially early season?
8: uh, Evenings are better. Um, The reason I hunted the morning then, I just couldn't wait to get out. And it was a spot that I didn't scout, but I knew from previous history that hey if i if i go out here and hunt i might have a chance at a good deer in the morning and i'm not gonna burn my other i don't want i was saving my other stuff mm-hmm. for the evening hunts and i was like i'm just you know wanted to get out in the woods this first day i was i was ready to go
0: and see so that's kind of funny uh a guy we've interviewed on the podcast a few times is jonathan Moreland. he's from eastern arkansas kills a lot of big bucks he kills most of them in the evenings but one of his bigger bucks he actually the biggest buck he's killed is in the mid 180s um he it was on a morning hunt, but he killed it right around noon or right after he got in the standing guy, kind of mid-late morning. He killed it midday in October uh, on a feed tree. Um, but he was saying the same thing. He's like, I my time is very precious when I hunt. So he's like, if I have time to hunt, I'm not not going to go on a morning hunt, even though it's early season. I might go to that secondary location, like you said, like I'm, I might say my best spots where I know I have a good opportunity mm-hmm. in the evenings, I go to an area, like you said, that maybe you've scouted in the past, there's always been, you know, good activity there, or it's an area you really kind of want to dive into, but instead of, you know, throwing an evening sit out, I'm going to go in the morning, see what, you know, see what opportunities I have, see if I see any visuals on any kind of bucks yep. or anything, and then based off that decision, I may go to my, set, you know, my primary location that evening that I know I have a lot better chance yep. based off how you scout it and you know what's in the area. Um, so that's kind of interesting, almost like using those morning hunts, morning sits, early season as a way to almost kind of like test the water in some spots and kind of a little bit, even though you've been in the area, almost like hunting blind. Like you hadn't been in there really scouted it, you know, that year. So you, you just kind of knew the area. You knew how it laid out, knew probably a tree to get into or some trees to get into, oh. climbed in. And just based off the annual historical pattern you've seen in that area the last three years, had option opportunity you were able to capitalize on that deer.
8: Yep. You have about three to four days because of the parking lot where it's set up at. Everyone walks right through it, and they walk to the back. So I knew that if I was gonna have an opportunity, I was like, I'm just gonna try it out for the first day and see what happens. And you know, three hours into the hunt, I'm dragging a deer out.
0: Is it fu- is it not funny how that is like the most common thing you can think of? Like so many guys like because they've heard for the last 10, 15 years about going deep, like go as far as you can. That you can almost guarantee if there's a parking lot and there's like a logging road access path that goes really far back, mm-hmm. most of your pressure is gonna be back wherever that log yep. road stops at. And guys, yep. are just like oh, I'll walk. We had a, we had a gentleman from uh, um, Georgia. We had on the podcast a long time ago, probably four years ago now. Glenn Solomon, episode one sixteen, um, who I called him kind of like the Dan Infall of the South. He was hunting buck beds for the last forty years in the Southeast on public land, killing some hammers on public, yep. doing so. Um, and he was doing, and he always talked about it, he's like guys, they may feel like they, they'll walk far from the access, but they're not getting off a logging road. They're they're going to stay on a path. They may walk a mile and a half two miles in if they can but they're only gonna be within 100 150 yards off that logging path at the very most because a lot of guys just feel they don't want to get away from the access path in case their phone died or the light went out all that kind of stuff at least they know they could walk back to that logging path or whatever the access point is and then walk it straight back to their truck so it's like when you take that out of consideration and also thinking that most guys are going to walk back deep if you find that diversity a little bit closer to that access point which has kind of been a common theme of this episode we've had a few guys mention this so far about find that diversity in those and those habitat edges close to the parking areas or you know a gate where guys are gonna be parking at and those bucks kind of get held tight there more so for the reason that nobody hunts there so it's the only place that doesn't have pressure like yeah they're gonna hear people talking and trucks door slam and stuff but they're gonna stay in that area because nobody pushes in there they walk right past it
8: yeah and you, you get a lot of people that don't want to i feel like you you put water in the mix with it, you're getting rid of probably 95% of the people. People don't want to get, they don't want to cross water, they don't want to, if you have to take, if you have to put waders on or anything Mm -hmm. like that, you're getting rid of a lot of people.
0: Absolutely. And also if it's one of those places you have to put waders on, but it's still not big enough to put a boat in there, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense to put a boat or canoe, because maybe it's only 15 yards wide and it's one of those little spots, like there's a couple spots in a couple different states I think of like this where. If you were to take a boat in there, it would be so much more hassle because the boat doesn't really help you all that much when it comes to access. Maybe, maybe it's not a place to put a boat in or put a kayak mm-hmm. in unless you're gonna take that water further down, if you're just trying to cross it, nobody's gonna take a boat in there just to do that. So in most guys, I keep see I keep chest sweaters in my truck the last couple of seasons in case you run into that spot where like I can run back to the truck, get some PVC chest sweaters, pack them in with me. They roll up on my backpack, yep. get there, drop my boots, put them on, cross that water, drop them on the other side and keep hiking with my boots on my yep. other boots. And uh, that is a very good point. You get in those spots and it is uh, it is uh it's funny how uh the the human presence in most of those cases completely disappears at that point point. and like you said that could be 40 yards from a parking area and that buck could be on the other side of that water right there in that little oh, yeah. thick spot um spot in missouri comes to mind That scout is exactly like that just yeah thick multifloral lo- uh, multifloral rose thicket on the back side of this parking area that nobody would want to walk through and there was a deep ditch with some water in it and everybody would take an access pass going much further down to this public. I was like, I'm gonna go check this back corner. The, the back corner of the property wasn't 200 yards from this parking area. And the second I got through that multi floor rose, which is gnarly walking through, getting all tore up and stuff, sticking on the other side of it, I could still see my car, still see my truck. There's like rubs and scrapes everywhere right there on the back side of this thicket. And then it kept going, went down through that ditch across that water, came up the other side of the next ridge, and it was just a heavy, heavy sign. And uh, from previous year, this was like early September, and there's still some there's some fresh rubs ha- happening already. And then you can see all the historical rubs from the past, and big looking branches and scrapes. I'm like, dude, this is the spot. Oh, yeah. You know what's funny? I scout a lot of those places. I never go back to hunt them. So I still gotta go to Missouri and
8: hunt that spot. I have a lot of a lot of spots that I scout that I never end up touching. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yep. It's M- like it's map. pretty it's pretty common because you kind of get a I guess you kind of get, kinda get a, a feel like I'm just gonna go run in here. You find some good stuff, but like, man, I already got some other areas. I'm I'm pretty dialed into
8: get five, six pictures at five, six different areas, and I'm like, what do I need to go to this place for now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, as a point of kind of wrapping up this segment, Tyler, can you give us – give me, like, your thoughts. If, if there's, you know, guys listen to this podcast um, that are – they haven't had the consistent success even finding and targeting mature bucks. You know, they want to get to that point of being able to, you know, harvest their first mature buck what would you tell them to kind of focus on? You know, taking kind of maybe habitat out of the equation for the most part. What would you tell them to kind of focus on in order to start building that success and building that confidence in order for them to go out there and not only target a mature buck, but get opportunities potentially?
8: Well, so I mean, for me, like before 2019, I have two or three deer that are maybe 130. And in the last four or five years, I've I mean, I've killed it. And that and I owe it really. Uh, listening to Dan Infault, uh getting on YouTube and watching Jacob Schmidt Deer School, awesome. And reading and just just getting my hands on everything I could. I mean, I just wanted I wanted to get all the information I could for like the next seven months, and uh, and I went out my first year and killed the biggest deer I ever killed, for, just from just information on YouTube. It's it's there. You just got to put the time in and just mm-hmm. studying. A lot of it is the terrain is what I first started started with, and then I got into the edges and then water access and other stuff like that, but really focusing on learning to read the maps, the terrain maps, that's where I started, I mean, aerial maps and
0: when you brought up Jacob Schmidt, that brought that was the first guest ever on this podcast back in twenty eighteen. Really? And I haven't talked to him in forever now. And we were recording that audio. I wouldn't even go back and listen to that podcast, guys. It's terrible. Just from the host standpoint, not yeah. not from him. He was great. Is he still putting video content
8: out? Um I didn't look at the dates, how old they were, but I've just been watching, like I said, his his deer school one-on-one. Yeah, the like, m-
0: he'd have, like, some of the most detailed aerial imagery. He's from Arkansas, lives in Arkansas, had some of the most detailed map breakdowns of, like, deer movement and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I need to go check and see if he's still doing it, because I want to feel, feel like a, a while ago, I went to look, and it seemed like he hadn't done anything in a few years, but... Just talking about like a wealth of knowledge from a guy that's also from the southeast, but it translates about how he talks about habitat edges, transition edges, corridors, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And be able to see it on a map where you can like, oh, okay, I can go apply this to my own piece of public or whatever. Yeah. So that's awesome. Well, cool. Well, Todd, yeah. thank you for joining me, yeah. brother. Pretty and sure, yeah. uh, best luck to you this season. Hopefully you kill a couple more hammers this
8: year. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> awesome.
0: All right, guys, so next on the segment, we've got our buddy Rendell Eric back on the podcast. He was on our last segment when we did this, or last podcast we did this at, at the Southern show for the Mobile Hunters Expo. Now we're at the Northern show for the Mobile Hunters Expo. But, Rendell, how you doing, brother? I'm
6: doing great, man.
0: Hey, listen, getting a little excited here. So, season's fast approaching us. And one thing I wanted to kind of talk to you about, it's a little bit different question that I've asked everybody else, just because I kind of asked you the, la- the same question last time, which was, what's one of the biggest factors for you when it comes to having the consistent success you've had, especially you know now after you moved to Iowa from uh, Tennessee? but. Yeah. Instead of asking that question, I want to talk to you about your thought process in scouting, you typically have a lot of success, especially before the rut over in Iowa, uh, which is, again, kind of that time of the year most guys are like, kind of be a little more casual hunting, getting ready for November, and you're like, forget it, I'm going to yeah, try to kill my, one early. That's
6: my go time, my fave.
0: Well, let's see, that's what I want to talk about. So wh- what what is, like, your thought process when you go into, like, your speed scouting that you always talk about? Like, how do you go about scouting, both from, like, an observational scouting standpoint but also boots on the ground? What are you looking to do in order to kind of put the pieces together where you're going to be at that first week or two of season?
6: Yeah, so I do all the post-season scouting, look for all the buck beds, bedding areas, and then maybe the transitional zones, if you can kind of see whatever they might come in and stage in. And then as I did all my homework as much as I possibly could, usually like 300 miles, maybe more some years, and then I transitioned that into the summer scouting, which I'll tell you what, I was like, i want to jump in and do a bunch of summer scouting, which I just did in Kentucky, you know, mm-hmm. before I go down there. And uh, it sucks. <laughs> Everybody knows it sucks. Yeah. So I'm like, no, I'm good. So I do, like, more glassing. <laughs> I'm checking crop rotations. If I'm hunting somewhere new, I might go look for a browse type. Mm-hmm. Like, you've been having a lot of episodes on different plants. Oh, yeah. Deer eat. And it's, a lot of it's more nutrition than, like, main ag. Absolutely. And they come out and they'll stage in that. So I'm looking for that paired with what I found postseason. The beds, I think that'll be harder to hunt, so I'm finding that browse. And then I want to see the main rotation because I feel like in the Midwest, especially Iowa, like I've said, I feel like they they shift to corn Mm -hmm. pretty early because it opens October 1st, so they're already on the corn before that. Mm -hmm. And then the phase before that, they're kind of on a hay green, maybe some leftover acorns. So I'm trying to catch that transition in the Midwest. But if you're in more of a opening, like Missouri opens uh, early, September. mid-September, Wisconsin, but you got like Dakotas that open right out the gate, uh, Nebraska. So I'm looking for beans then, or white oaks mm-hmm. going to be dropping early, or and then the browse type back off of that, because uh, early a lot of guys will try to get right on the beans and hunt the field edges, but I still think that i want to be off of that i don't like hunting field edges early i think you possibly can if you're getting daylight pictures of the buck but i like to slide in i might not go all the way back to the 100 yard buffer like i like i normally want to be i might maybe get halfway or we were talking about uh observation sits. i might go a couple days early and just get as far away as i can i'll usually hook a camera arm uh up in a tree like maybe Mm -hmm. 10 15 feet Sometimes higher if I got to see down in the field. I'll take a spot and scope, like a 20 by 65 mm-hmm. by like 80, mm-hmm. or 85. A lot of guys use that smaller diameter, but the bigger diameter gives you more light, and those bigger bucks tend to come out even last light, even in. Before the season opens and it's almost like they know too there's a switch there because you'll see all the deer on beans walking around daylight season opens boom they're back, but I think they're getting hammered with that field edge pressure a couple of days before guys are putting cameras in speed scouting, so I think it pushes them back that's why I want to be in that first layer back. And the staging type area where that browse is
0: yeah well let's talk about this because you're gonna be hunting kentucky this year early yep. season so what was your thought process when, when you don't we don't have to get specifics on exactly like how you're figuring out what public you wanted to go to but when you found the area that you wanted to go at or go to when you were going to go in there for a couple of days and scout what were you trying to find and, and figure out you know mix with some of the ag like again what are you trying to focus on that you're trying to key in on plus i know you hung a camera you already got some bucks showing up yep. on camera so Talk to me a little bit about your thought process going into that scouting.
6: So I went to any beans I could see off the road and immediately glass those. And then my plan was I just found as many bean fields as I could that are either on public or adjacent to public so I could glass into them. And if I had to walk back, I marked that a different color on my map, so I know I'd have to go in there with a the spot and scope mm-hmm. and see back in there. And then I looked for ulterior, I mean, alternate plans. Mm-hmm like uh, White Oaks, any kind of browse I could get into. So when I was looking on the aerials, I just e-scouted everything first. And then I thought, okay, using my experience from Iowa and some other Midwest states, where is the most likely place for a mature buck to be bedded? And I literally just pinned it a bunch as I could, and then I just went right in. I didn't even look at anything else. Because you're not really looking for rubs and scrapes this time of year. I mean, you can find them. I found a couple, but I just went straight, speed scout, straight in there, because it's like 100 degrees, you know, sweating to death. So I'm trying to figure out access. I go look at the spot, and I'm like, all right, yeah, there would be a big buck here. Nope. And I just mark it off. If there is, I just hang a camera. I dropped a couple cell cams, you know, just so I don't have to go back in there and check them. I can just go hunt. Mm -hmm. And then... Field edges, I tend to drop more like SD card cameras because I feel like I can roll in there and check them because I feel like Kentucky get a lot of pressure. Yeah. So I just use an experience. Like uh, one spot I found on the aerial, I just found two old fields that were overgrown, and they kind of act like a clear cut. They had maples in Mm. there, berries, all types of other. I'm like, all right, he's going to be in there. And then I was walking to the spot that I seen that I really liked on the aerial, and if I went 50 yards one way or the other, it got super hot. But this one spot that I found, it was cold almost. And all the thermals out of those clear old field clear cuts uh-huh. were dumping right there. And then I had a mountain stream behind me. And then I used the mountain stream to access in there. Then I found the kill tree right on the bank of the mountain stream. I can come in, leave no scent, so I could hunt a couple days in a row. Mm-hmm. I got the thermals pulling to me. And there was a main trail off like maybe 100 yards to my left. And I was like, oh, I'm sure Buck's not going to be on that trail. But I found that sliver trail coming down into that little micro thermal hub, if you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, he's going to come down this. And then I hung the camera, caught him coming to the bean field like the next day
0: yeah that's pretty cool so you're able to go in there and get off what most guys would be focused on which is the beans itself yeah get back in the timber and kind of find that transition area where he's kind of coming from some bedding area coming around and kind of using that little slope to his advantage yeah. before he jumps up into those actual yeah, beans. yeah and there are
6: some white oaks i took my binos and i glassed up there and there's some acorns growing so those will drop so he should stage right there so mm. feeding the clear cuts hit those oaks and then he'll move out that's a spot i'll probably hunt really close right away because I don't they move so slow when they're just browsing those old mm-hmm. bucks like that he's not like long lining like I talked about he's not going straight out a long distance to the egg he's staying pretty close and then I look for spots like that would be a long a long lining spot somewhere that had really good bedding but no food and then there's beans like a mile away that I was like okay I think a buck would go to those beans and then I found the best travel route that I thought in my mind a buck would use and i just hung some cameras on that stuff Mm -hmm. and then i do the same type of stuff in iowa i just speed scout right in because i spent a couple years just looking at buck beds like four years all i did was look at beds like hundreds of miles of just going in looking at beds so once you do that you get experience and you look on the map how it sets up like i can go to different states and i can just speed in Mm -hmm. and you might miss a bunch of overlook stuff but I don't I don't know, man. I'd just rather have as many properties as I can because I'm trying to uh, beat pressure, too. So, if I get pressure one spot, it keeps me mentally in the game because I got, like, 30 other spots lined up. So, I just keep bouncing around like that. And I look for smaller, too. I don't like giant. I think most guys are attracted to giant tracks of land. I don't like that because... It's harder to scout, man, and figure it out. And you got movement; things are shifting. If you got one small piece, I'll pick out maybe one or two of the best spots, and they're flying there. Scout it, hang the camera, gone, and I just keep jumping like that.
0: What What do you think is uh, what is? What do you think? Some well, how should I word this question? What do you think is a a factor for guys? when they're not having success, say, summer scouting, like trying to find some of the stuff? I mean, do you think it's they get too tight up in the weeds of things and that they're not trying to, like, necessarily speed scout a bunch of spots and they maybe spend so much too much time in, like, one or two areas instead of checking a bunch of areas? Like, what do you think are some factors that's keeping them, holding them back from finding that one spot? Do you think they're going too slow between, you know, locations? Or what's your take on that?
6: Well, I think a lot of guys don't go ahead. They don't go beforehand in postseason scout. Like, if you know you're hunting Kentucky – the best time to go, pick a weekend in January, roll down there with a buddy, and just cover as much ground as possible. I think a lot of guys try to figure out every little rub, scrape. I'm looking for major lines of movement, specific things that mature bucks do. Like, I don't care about does or little bucks. I'm I, After you scout so much, you, you know what to key in on. So a lot of it's just woodsmanship, experience. Mm-hmm. And then they get on these big tracks of land, and they think they have to scout it all because I think they worry about the little piece getting pressure where I find all the people gravitate to the big because, oh, man, if I get pressure, I can bounce way over here, bounce way over that. And that's, man, it can be overwhelming. Like you get in there and then you get some pressure on you mm-hmm. and deer shifting. And guys are worried about what deer are doing right now. And I could care less what a deer's doing right now, honestly. I'm trying to predict, like, what you know what I talked about in the last thing we did about moving with the deer. I'm trying to predict the shift, food sources that are shifting. Like the season evolves so fast. Like guys are just too worried about like, now they see that buck out there and they're like, oh, I'm setting up right there. Well, that deer's probably not gonna be there. I mean, he could be, but the odds of it are not very good. So I like, I think it's just a higher percentage of efficiency if you're thinking forward thinking. And I'll even use other guys, like I was talking to you about thermal hubs all right i think everybody and their dead grandma good dead grandpa you know what i mean are going to be in a thermal hub this year so i've been actually i'm predicting that so i've been looking at thermal hubs and i'm like all right where would this buck shift to so i'm going to hunt that mostly i think because i'm going to catch that movement so i'm going to actually use other hunters to my advantage yeah no by playing off of them yeah
0: knowing they're probably going to get down those thermal hubs and they're probably going to push the deer out of there. Yeah. So like where are those deer going to shift to if that pressure down in those hubs? Yeah, and they're
6: super hard to hunt because wind swirl, mm-hmm. thermals. A lot of those mature bucks are smart. They might not move into that hub until after daylight, after the thermal shift and they come on that high wall. So you have to be up on that high wall or you're toast. Mm-hmm. The, you know, there's so many things that go into a hub wide versus steep tight versus yeah and i like the really steep ones Mm because i find most of my mature bucks are in there because it's harder to hunt because all the thermals are dumping so fast in there the wind swirls a lot more Mm -hmm. so i find that a lot of guys like the wider ones they're easier to hunt but the bigger bucks that i find are usually in the steeper ones
0: awesome well, perfect. Well, Rendell, appreciate you joining us back on the podcast. Yeah, Best of luck to you this Thank season. You. And, hey, guess what? I'm excited to be hunting with you in Alabama this year, man. Yeah, it's it's going to be a be good time. Awesome. Yeah, three,
6: three buck state. <laughs> three buck it's state. It's going to be awesome to get down there in a rut and try to put some Alabama deer down.
0: Yeah, listen, that's all I'm saying. It's like if Rendell comes down to Alabama and kills some good deer <laughs> with his bow, which there's a good chance he will, especially in the area that we're going to be hunting, um, it's going to be awesome. So super excited to have you down there, brother. But appreciate yeah, you stopping man. by. Yeah, can't wait. Thank you. All right, guys, our last segment of the podcast. And last but not least, we have Dieter Cockin on the podcast, who's been a seminar host and guest this whole week. So, uh, Dieter, I f- first off, thoroughly enjoyed your seminar um, a little bit about you first off we're gonna get you on the southern Outdoors and podcast at some time soon but uh, you're in law enforcement and deal with, deal with a lot of canine handling which is pretty fascinating so uh, I know you had listened to the episode we did with Tom Brownlee uh, about a year or so ago and I think we're gonna have you on because you get some other interesting pieces of uh, details that you actually explained in your seminar that I think we're gonna discuss but We'll say that for another episode, but on this episode, Dieter, I want to know, what's been like one of the biggest factors for you when it comes to finding and consistently getting on mature bucks in the UP of Michigan?
9: Yeah, I think the biggest part for me is trying to be well-rounded. I mean, the deer rarely are going to do what you, what you want them to do or what you have planned out. You can have your season planned at the beginning of the year, and it's going to end up going in a completely different direction half the time, so... I think I was lucky enough that early on, I was kind of forced to learn a bunch of different hunting styles, because I ended up, I played professional hockey for 10 years. I played a lot in the minors, so I was moving to different states every year. So I think the, the first state I lived in was in Kentucky, and then I was in New York, and then I was in Massachusetts, then in Connecticut, and then in Maine. So every year I was forced to, you know, on the fly, locate new areas hunt mobile just because I didn't know how long I'd be in that area and attack deer in completely different environments and that taught me just a bunch of different tactics and strategies whether it was you know in Binghamton New York it was kind of hill country and then in Massachusetts we were right near the ocean so you had some of that salt marsh type stuff and then in Connecticut was completely different too because it was uh you know, it's kind of swamps and woods, and so just a variety of different things. And I think being well-rounded gives you the ability to kind of roll with the punches. And you know, whether I'm in Michigan or in a different state, and I'm kind of pushed by by other hunters, I think I can react and 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 get it done in a variety of different situations.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting, and I'm glad you brought that. Like almost being like a, just a really well-rounded, and versatile whitetail hunter. Um, you know. Uh, and you can probably even elaborate even more on this, but like the more you experience in different areas and different habitat types, if you can find success on getting on deering and, and opportunities of killing some of those bucks, you learn so much from that that you then can take to different area. Maybe it's a completely different habitat type, but you can take what you learned in this one area and kind of work work there and how the bucks use that habitat habitat type. And maybe you go from that, those swamps that hill country. And, yeah, it, the habitat's not the same, but bucks are still bucks. They're still going to use that cover in the same way and transition edges and everything else. You just got to re what they're doing in the different habitat type and in order to have success. But once you do that enough places, you build up your toolbox of skill sets on how to hunt deer in different areas that you then can take back to your home state or wherever you're living at and it being even more versatile and well-rounded in those areas.
9: Yeah, and it's even throughout a season, I mean, there's different – For me there's you know there's the early season and then there's a pre-rut and rut and then there's a late season and then being versatile in all all those seasons where you can you know what to do early and then your tactics evolve and they're totally different in the rut and then i think the the last three bucks i've shot in michigan have all been december there one was december 16th december 27th and then december 29th so i mean right near the end of the season and and part of that is being versatile and well-rounded but another part is just being willing to to grind it out and stick at it because you know it doesn't always happen the first couple days and sometimes it's just a matter of staying after it and staying motivated and getting up every morning and and kind of you know kind (laughs) of just making it happen at some point where you know a lot of guys are fizzled out and kind of gave up on it and you know by the late season there's usually nobody not much for people out and Mm -hmm. I actually really like that time of the year so just uh you know being able to I've always prided myself in that where I'm willing to you know sometimes outwork the other guy but to also be consistent in a variety of different environments I think last year you know I thought I was going to kill him one way and that totally fizzled out and you know in the rut it was hot and had to totally Change my plan and make a different move. And I think for guys who are looking to find success, and especially public land, public land is one of the greatest tools out there because you can make mistakes and it doesn't matter. You can just move on to a different area. But at the same point, you can have a handful of really good spots that are consistent. But let's say you have a day that for whatever you're reason you think is a is a bad day for one of your good spots you can still go to an area you've never been to learn something different you know all your main spots could be in wooded areas and then you can take a day and just screw around in a swamp and see if you can figure something out because it's amazing how much you can learn from from just stepping outside of your comfort zone and trying something different and trying to evolve your box and get more versatile in a bunch of different situations. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, dear, one thing I wanted you to touch on just on this episode, in your area of Michigan, um, I didn't notice until you were doing your seminar, but on public land, people are allowed to bait. Can you talk about a lot of the states in the southeast, baiting is pretty prominent in a lot of states that allow it, which there's quite a few states in the southeast that allow baiting, not on public land, but on private land. We have a lot of listeners that hunt both public and private. When you're dealing with people that are also running bait, uh, and, and maybe you're not the kind of guy you're not necessarily running bait, how do you use that pressure and that those bait piles as something to kind of key off of of knowing where people are at and how those bucks are going to potentially come in there? But that pressure is going to keep those deer in a certain area. Hey, can you talk a little bit about that and that buffer zone that you have kind of learned when it comes to where bait piles will be put out and how those deer use them and how you can kind of use it to your advantage? So baiting's the easiest
9: way to make a crappy spot okay and a really good spot average <laughs> cuz if you if you find an awesome spot and you start baiting then you've totally changed the dynamic of that spot you can't really even hunt it in the morning cuz you're going to they're going to be there in the dark and then you wreck it in the evening because you're going to get busted on from the deer coming in late so You've just ruined the spot where, if you just hunted at normal, you'd be able to hunt it clean. And and sometimes in the big woods, you have you end up pounding a spot where you might sit it two, three days in a row if if the wind's right and and you don't think that anything's crossing your trail or it's not there's not being any detriment because those deer are really nomadic where they might disappear for a week. So it's almost like if you don't see anything for a couple days in a row. It, your chances are almost getting better as long as you're hunting clean and and getting in the way you need to get in. So, with bait, especially in the Big Woods area where there's no ag, so there's no predictable food, so there's nothing really that are that's holding deer other than browse. So, if you can get your your understanding of browse up, you can identify these areas. But even with that, that without that, the uh, the bait piles are going to hold those So. If other people are holding the does and the family groups, there's gonna have to be transition areas around there where the bucks are gonna cruise, where they might not be inclined to actually go into the bait, but they're gonna check the trails going in and out. So if you can hunt just off of those and use those basically as you know, a pinpoint food location, almost like treat them like a like a feed tree, somebody else's feed tree, and you're just trying to catch the deer going in and out of there, and you know a lot of times they're gonna the bigger bucks are only gonna go there at night so you can identify what bedding's close and if you can get uh something on cameras you end up having to use more in the lower deer density areas you almost have to use more cameras just because it's harder to find a, a big buck like if i go out of state to a good state then you just hunt the best spots and the best terrain and and more than likely there's one there but you could have the best terrain features up there and it could just not have an older class deer so the hardest part's is finding them once you can find them then then you can at least narrow down an area and start to attack it and I think that's what starts to intimidate a lot of people more because I mean when you're talking about hunting 50,000 acre pieces it's like where do you begin well you narrow it down to a 40-acre piece and figure that out and branch out from there. You can't try to chew off, you know, bite off more than you can chew with attacking too much, but, mm-hmm. you know, that's where cameras can help, and I like to, in the big woods, if I can have a spot where I can check a couple cameras before I'm going to that area, then it's almost like you you hunted three different spots that day, because you got intel from this spot, you got intel from this spot, and then you got whatever you observed at the other spot, and you can kind of get more information for what you're going to do moving forward because I think information ends up killing deer especially through the course of a year if you're able to get that intel intel and make good decisions and and react to what you're seeing you're going to be way more successful than if you know if you're limited to time where you can only hunt one day here or one day there it becomes success comes very random and I think that might limit a lot of guys where they just don't have the time or or the desire to to kind of get after it the way you need to sometimes.
0: Absolutely. Dieter, as a way to wrap up as we're breaking down the show and everything around us, um, so a little background noise for everybody out there, but as a way to wrap up this episode and wrap up the show and your interview, what would be a piece of advice you'd give people in order to kind of start to focus on for this season if they haven't had consistent success finding mature bucks? What would you tell them to focus on and to hopefully get them on the straight and narrow path to start building confidence in having some of that success?
9: I think there's... There's so much great information out there that sometimes becomes information overload where you have to hunt your own hunt. Like, if if everybody's telling you you have to go two miles deep and you're probably not going to go that deep, then it's there's no point in even scouting those areas. Go scout the areas you're likely to hunt. Hunt your own hunt. You can do it. You can have success a million different ways. You just have to you know take the information you're getting you might take a little information from this guy a little bit of information from this guy and put it all together in your own kind of style and the big thing is to be confident in what you're doing what i mean whatever your reason is for making a decision you got to you got to stick with it mm-hmm. and when you're in the tree the worst thing you can do is not be confident in what you're doing cuz then you're not going to be paying attention you're going to make mistakes you're going to you're going to come in sloppy you're going to make noise and basically you're going to be your own worst enemy by not being confident in what you're doing if you were 100% sure that there's going to be a big buck walk underneath your tree your approach would be spot on you'd be quiet going up the tree you'd pay attention when you're in the tree you'd sit there till the last minute of shooting light and you'd you'd hunt a clean hunt. But if you don't have confidence then you get sloppy and makes mistakes and then if you were to get an opportunity, most likely you're gonna blow it. So mm-hmm. so that'd be my one advice was take what you can from different people, hunt your own hunt. And then when you make your decision, stick with it and have confidence in what you're doing.
0: Awesome. Dieter, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hopefully we'll be excited to get you on the podcast here uh, maybe in the next month or two, talk a little bit more about scent. I think that would be an interesting discussion for us to have. But uh, appreciate everybody listening to this podcast. appreciate everybody watching as well on YouTube. And we'll catch you all back for the next episode from the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast.
1: You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that, that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you. Whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now
9: we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.